This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. they have to find someone else at Fox News to be a lightning rod now that uh, Tucker Carlson is not there. Have you followed the latest controversy involving Greg Gutfeld? Now, I'll begin this discussion by saying a couple of things. One, I don't really watch cable news. I watch uh, not not with the sound on anyway. There's three or four screens with different cable news channels on now. And if uh, something happens or I'll see it on the bottom of the screen, it might catch my attention. But I don't really pay attention to it except for the hour of a week of Smirconish that I watch on the weekend. Other than that, in a post-Tucker world, I watch zero cable news. But I know that uh, the show The Five is very, very popular. I believe, at least until recently, I don't know if this has changed, but until recently, that was the most watched show on the Fox News channel. And this was the show that Geraldo was on. Other people have been on it, Janine Pirro. And one of the people that's on this regularly is Greg Gutfeld. And Greg Gutfeld, who's also one of their newest primetime hosts, Greg Gutfeld and Fox News are facing a slew of backlash after Gutfeld seemed to make a remark about Holocaust survivors who had work skills and how they survived in the concentration camps. Now, I'm going to play you what he said, and I'd love to hear from you about whether or not you think these remarks were inappropriate, whether he should apologize, whether Fox News should issue any sort of a statement. But just to give you a little context, so Gutfeld was defending Florida's new educational guideline to teach students about slavery. And one of the aspects of this slavery curriculum says that slaves learn skills that could be applied for their personal benefit. That's the that's the quote in the Florida education curriculum. It's been very controversial. And this is what they were discussing on the five. And in the context of that discussion, Greg Gutfeld said the following. This is from Monday evening's edition of The Five. Obviously, I'm not black, but I'm Jewish. Would someone say about the Holocaust, for instance, that there were some benefits for Jews, right? While they were hanging out in concentration camps, you learned a strong work ethic. By the way, I just want to uh, reiterate the person that you hear speaking there. She is the liberal on the five. Usually the way that the the five works is there's four right wingers and one left winger and they all kind of gang up on the left winger. It's, it's kind of like professional wrestling. Nothing like a substantive dialogue like that to get the cable news situation started. But the person that you hear speaking there is Jessica Tarlov, who is Jewish and who's liberal. So Jessica Tarlov speaking to the rest of the people on the five. Obviously, I'm not black, but I'm Jewish. Would someone say about the Holocaust, for instance, that there were some benefits for Jews, right? While they were hanging out in concentration camps, you learned a strong work ethic, right? Maybe you learned a new skill. Did you ever read Man's Search for Meaning? Vic Frankel talks about how you had to survive in a concentration camp by having skills. You had to be useful. Utility. Utility kept you alive. So, again, what he says there, you had to survive in a concentration camp by having skills. You had to be useful. Utility kept you alive. People are going crazy. Early on Tuesday, the Auschwitz Memorial 
shared a lengthy statement on Twitter condemning Gutfeld. This is what they said. While it's true that some Jews may have used their skills or usefulness to increase their chances of survival during the Holocaust, it is essential to contextualize this statement properly and understand that it does not represent the complex history of the genocide perpetrated by Nazi Germany. The White House issued a statement condemning the Greg Gutfeld remarks, and uh, there are no shortage of other people that are condemning these remarks. Michael Bornstein is a Holocaust survivor. He was on CNN talking about what Gutfeld said. As a Holocaust survivor, what do you think about what you just heard being said there in that clip from Fox News? Well, I'm disgusted, basically. Uh, my father was an accountant, and uh, he had uh, basically negotiating skills. He and my brother were gassed in Auschwitz. My mother uh, knew how to pack, learned how to pack bullet, bullets that killed Jewish people. There were over six million people killed in the Holocaust, over a million people uh, killed in Auschwitz. And uh, there is no silver lining to killing six million people or talking about slaves and the benefits of slaves and learning uh, and what they were doing. Now, the White House issued a statement saying what Fox News allowed to be said on the air yesterday and has so far failed to condemn is an obscenity. And then it goes on to make a lengthy statement. I'm curious how you view this situation. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I'll play you what Gutfeld said again, and I'll give you my take, which is a little bit different after hearing it than when I saw the headline. Obviously, I'm not black, but I'm Jewish. Would someone say about the Holocaust, for instance, that there were some benefits for Jews, right? While they were hanging out in concentration camps, you learned a strong work ethic, right? Maybe you learned a new skill. Did you ever you read did- Man's Search for Meaning? Vic Frankel talks about how you had to survive in a concentration yeah. camp by having skills. You had to be useful. Utility. Utility okay. kept you but alive. Also- so the book he's talking about, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankel, I, it's a 1946 book, and it chronicles his experience as a prisoner in Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And it describes his psychotherapeutic method, which involved identifying a purpose in life to feel positive about, and then immersively imagining that outcome. According to Frankel, the way a prisoner imagined the future affected his longevity. The book intends to answer the question, how was everyday life in a concentration camp reflected in the mind of the average prisoner? And part one constitutes Frankel's analysis of his experiences in the concentration camps, while part two introduces his ideas of meaning and uh, some other theories that he might have. I have to say, I think Greg Gutfeld, I don't think Greg Gutfeld said anything wrong here. I am, you know, I don't, I know Greg Gutfeld is a comedian, but I don't know that he was joking here. I think he cited an author mentioned what the author said again he didn't quote it verbatim but he really did sort of point to the broader picture and i um look i I don't know what this necessarily has to do with the florida changes in education i think either the curriculum changes with respect to slavery are appropriate or they're not but i don't think anything gutfeld said there look i'm not jewish i'm but my uh, my wife is half jewish my son is part jewish And I don't think anything that uh, he said there is offensive to 
the people that lived through or who didn't live through the Holocaust. Am I off base here? And I'd love to hear people answering and tackling this question objectively. What I don't want to hear is you like Greg Gutfeld, so you're going to defend what he said, or you don't like Greg Gutfeld, and so you're going to attack what he said. I don't I don't care much about Greg Gutfeld one way or another. I don't think I've ever met him. But uh, I, you know, I have no opinion of Greg Gutfeld, really. A couple of times I've seen him. I've never found him particularly funny, but, you know, I'm sort of indifferent to Greg Gutfeld. And what the Auschwitz Memorial is saying in that statement, while it's true that some Jews may have used their skills or usefulness to increase their chances of survival during the Holocaust, it's essential to contextualize the statement properly and understand that it does not represent the complex history of the genocide perpetuated by Nazi Germany. Well, I don't think Gutfeld in that clip, which Tarlov, by the way, didn't really respond to his question. I don't think Gutfeld was saying that it, it diminished in any way the genocide perpetuated by Nazi Germany. I think he said what he said, which is that you you again, I mean, I'm not going to play it again, but he makes Viktor Frankl's point. You had to survive in a concentration camp by having skills. Now, it doesn't mean that if you had skills like the fellow who mentioned that his father was an accountant, it doesn't mean that you didn't get killed. But I really do think that this is maybe not much ado about nothing, but much ado about very little. Like I said. When Tucker Carlson was not there anymore to take the slings and arrows and be the person saying the controversial things and being the lightning rod, you knew someone else was going to tackle that mantle, right? You knew somebody else was going to step up to the plate, and apparently it is Greg Gutfeld. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Going to take your calls in a moment. Let me tell you what's coming up. We have seen an explosion in autism rates over the last 20 years. Why is that the case? I'm going to talk with a mother of two by the name of, uh, by the name of Jill Exer. She is the mother of two autistic young people, and she has become an activist in the autism sphere. Then, a little later, we're going to talk a little bit about music and the music of Tony Bennett, specifically with Dave Damiani, a terrific singer, a modern-day crooner, a songwriter, a producer. But next hour, you better buckle up, because all eyes were on Washington yesterday as they did this UFO-slash-UAP hearing, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I watched every minute of this, every minute of this. And I was absolutely riveted. I thought it was fascinating. And we have assembled an all-star team of experts, people from the military, people who've worked in foreign governments, people who've done research, lawyers, all sorts of people, documentarians, people that were involved and cited in this hearing. We have a panel of four experts that's going to join us next hour on that front. And if you have questions about anything you heard in the hearing yesterday, you can call in and ask that question as well. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Yeah, good morning. You know, um, uh, this topic was handed very delicately in the, in the Spielberg movie Schindler's List, where uh, people survived by, like, being a uh, you know, a, a blacksmith or, uh, you know, that could make horseshoes. And uh, that's what Gutfeld said. He said, you know, as horrible as it seems at that time, 
the the people in the concentration camps survived with their skills. I mean, it's a terrible part of history, but uh, it's it's true. You know, I, I, I look. I'll defer to people like Viktor Frankl, who who lived through it, and other historians who are better versed uh, than I am on this. But whether Gutfeld is accurate or not, it sounds like there's a good chance he may be. Whether he's accurate or not, I don't think anything he said there was offensive or requires an apology from him or Fox News. Right? Yeah. Neither do I. I agree with you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'd love to talk to someone who feels differently. I'd love if you think these remarks were offensive and that Gutfeld should apologize or that Fox should issue some sort of statement condemning this, we'll put you to the front of the line because I'd love to hear that perspective. I'd love to have a real meaningful exchange about this. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Elmont. Hello, Steve. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? Um, I don't think that he was wrong. I think he might have spit, um, spoken out of uh, uh, content and it's definitely offensive to a lot of people. But what I would like to know is when they say that it's beneficial, beneficial to who? The perpetrator, the person that's pretty much has your life on the line so you don't have a chance, you don't really have a choice. What is beneficial to learning a skill that saves your life or die? That's the choice. Well, I, I mean, I don't know that uh, Gutfeld used the word beneficial, but I guess when when you use it in that context, I guess it's you, the benefit is having a skill or being able to acquire a skill that keeps you from dying. That's a skill. That's a benefit. Yes. So, and didn't a lot of, for instance, and and, and I'm glad that that the Jews also spoke up because I had actually made that that comparison, kind of on Dominic's show yesterday morning and how I was offended by the new law in, um, in Florida that they just think that they learn new skills. But a lot of the Africans that were brought over here already had skills. They weren't just, you know, Oh no, I'm sure that's the case. You know, again, I want to, maybe tomorrow we can have a whole discussion on exactly what the Florida law says, because I think that's probably worthy of a discussion on its own merits because there's been a lot of misinformation about that as well, and it's not at all helped by uh, by Ron DeSantis. But I uh, I just want to talk about the Gutfeld aspect of this because the White House has made this a big issue when they issue a statement calling for some sort of a condemnation here. That makes it a a big story. So I'm curious if you think that these remarks do deserve condemnation. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. All right, let's set the record straight. The goal of the Holocaust was to eliminate every single Jewish person on the planet. The fact that some people managed to survive because they had, quote, skills that the Nazis sound useful at the time is irrelevant because the end goal was to kill all of them. And the Nazis did a very good job of killing most of them. The only reason they didn't succeed is because they got defeated in World War II. If they had succeeded, there wouldn't be any Jewish people anywhere. Okay, so this notion that because a few people survived because the Nazis found them useful at the time is offensive. And I'm not Jewish, obviously, but any person who has any understanding of the history of the Holocaust would be offended. That's why 
These Jewish groups have come out against it. That's why the White House has come out against it. And that's why I'm coming out against it, because it's wrong. And I don't understand how you, who I believe is a very intelligent person who understands history, could say what you said. But tell me, tell me what Greg said there specifically that is wrong. Okay, what he said that was wrong is that you, the implication is that the people that survived the Holocaust is because the Nazis found them useful. That is not what happened. They killed millions of people literally as they got off the trains. They separated people, decided who might provide some labor temporarily. But the goal of the concentration camp system was to kill everyone who arrived at the right, concentration but, but, camp. But Gutfeld never said that wasn't the goal. He said he cited this Viktor Frankl book where he where Viktor Frankl said that uh, that if you were to be develop a skill and be useful, essentially, that increased your chances of surviving. So what was what was both inaccurate and offensive about what Gutfeld said? Okay, again, you're ignoring the fact that the system of the concentration camp was designed to kill everyone who entered it. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not ignoring that. I I don't. People. Well, Gutfeld certainly didn't acknowledge it. Listen, great Gutfeld. And and I'll be honest, I don't like the man. He says a lot of things that I find to be disgraceful. And I don't think he's funny. Um, But uh, the, the, the notion that the Holocaust was survivable is the problem. Because it wasn't survivable. People survived because the war ended before Hitler could kill all the Jews. That's why people survived the concentration camp. It wasn't because of their skills. The end goal, the reason these people were sent to the camps was not to survive. It was to be eliminated. That was the goal. All right. The fact that some people managed to survive because they had some skills that the Nazis thought were temporarily useful is is an unfortunate truth. And the Gutfeld is not the right person to say that statement. All right. That's all I have. Thank you, David. Let me try and get some other people in here. 800-848-9222. Michael was in New Jersey. Hello, Michael. Yeah, that, this movie, Schindler's List, proves Gutfeld correct. There was a scene in that movie where these piece-of-crap Nazis wanted to kill these children. Out of nowhere, Mr. Schindler, Oscar Schindler, comes out and says, you can't kill these children because they got the small right. hands remember that. your bombs. Right, I remember Now, that, that proves, and that movie's based on historical fact, from what I understand, and it was, and it was made by a liberal named, um, God, I, I can't tell Well, the filmmaker is Steven Steven Spielberg. Spielberg, Spielberg, made by a major liberal. So a liberal has proven what Gutfeld said, you know, through that movie. And the the thing was that that helped maybe a lot of those children, because a lot of those children in the end of the movie were still alive uh, at the end of the movie. That helped them survive until the Nazis finally were defeated by the Allied forces and the Axis of Evil was destroyed and eliminated. So in a way, that movie kind of proves what Guppel said was right. I don't think he did anything to insult the good Jewish people of our country and the world. I think what he was stating was a fact that, and that, no, I'm going to say it again, that movie shows less. Okay, well, you said. said it a bunch of times, Michael. You know, again, whether it's accurate or it's inaccurate, the question is, is it A, offensive, and is it worthy of an apology? I think the answer to both is no. And I understand what David said, but again, I think David comes at this from just not liking Greg Gutfeld and 
not liking him, and then he views it through that prism. I'm sort of agnostic when it comes to Greg Gutfeld. I don't care about Greg Gutfeld. I'm just looking at the statement on its own merits, and I don't think there was anything offensive about it. 800-848-9222, Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. You know, Frank, I read the book uh, many years ago, and I enjoyed it, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, it was one of the other books I read, like Night with uh, the late Elie Wiesel. Uh, I don't think uh, Greg Gutfeld, like yourself, said anything offensive. Uh, you know, it was a horrible time in uh, American history. But I, I don't see where he said anything uh, offensive here. All right. Well, thank you, Al. Neil, what do you think? Frank, I'll tell you the truth. I watched it, and I thought the whole thing was scripted. I mean, Jennifer Tarloff, she's talking about the, the Florida slavery part. And then all of a sudden, she brings up the Holocaust. And then, lo and behold, he brings up an obscure book. You may have heard of it, Frank. I never heard of it. From the 40s. Now, it wasn't his independent thought. He was quoting from the book. So it's not anything that he thought mm. of by himself. I think the whole thing was scripted. And uh, to be honest with you, there's a monocle of truth to it. Not a lot, but, I mean, people had to do something to survive. Most of them were carrying dead bodies or bringing them in and out of the ovens. I mean, the, the most horrible thing you could do to survive. They worked until they died. But they, it's, it's not like a skill where they were a tailor or, like you said, a blacksmith. They didn't have those skills. Well, they were, they were there to die. Yeah, uh, agreed. I mean, I don't think anybody disputes that. And you, you're you're Jewish uh, as well, I know, Neil. But do, did you find, even if you're right about it being scripted, which I hadn't thought of, but in the way that you that you put it out there, I could kind of actually see that happening. In the way that you put that out there, do you think that uh, do you think that he said anything that was offensive or that Fox should condemn? No, and and, and again, it wasn't his independent thought. And the White House is condemned. The White House is condemned because he's a conservative. Right. Well, obviously, they, you know, again, this is what kills me about Fox News and uh, and the White House and politics in general and cable news in general. It's all pro wrestling. One side is the good guys. One side is the bad guys. And you can't go wrong if you're Biden and you're trying to play to your base by attacking Fox News. And the same thing if it was President Trump going after MSNBC. Thanks, Neil. 800-848-9222. Matthew is in Baltimore. Hello, Matthew. Yes, sir. Um, I really love your show, Frank. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate for, it. For being on every night. Anyway, um, the Victor Frankl uh, reference that Gutfeld made, it's perfectly sound. If you read Victor Frankl, I had a friend who was a psychiatrist. He, he talked about Frankl a lot. And Frankl believed in a moral universe. And one of the things that kept him alive in the concentration camps was he said to himself, if something can be so hellish as where I'm at, there must be an opposite. There must be an opposite of this experience in life. And he believed in that. He believed he could get to that opposite, the other side of that hell. And keeping developing a skill is part of being positive. You know, developing a skill is part of being a moral being. So I, I think it's a much bigger picture than anybody's give. You should read the book, you know, uh, The Meaning of, of Man. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, I, I am, I'm familiar with it. I have not read it. I appreciate the context there, Matthew. Steve's in uh, Jersey City. Hello, Steve. 
Yeah, hi. Uh, for philosophy class, I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl about 40 years ago. Um, I agree with you, Frank. Um, Dave, who was upset about everything, doesn't realize that the people that did stay alive because of their skills, I'm sure they weren't offended. I'm sure they were grateful. Um, a better example of a movie, even than Shinna's List, is The Pianist with, with um, Adrian Brody. Right, I've seen that. That is a great picture. Well, what, what, what kept him alive was he was a great piano player, and they, he performed for them. And you know what? What's wrong with that? Yeah. Nothing. Well, I mean, it, it kept him alive. Look, you're going to have to do what you have to do to survive. That's all it comes down to. Yeah. And also, similar to that, I don't know if you saw The Reader with uh, Kate Winslet. Same situation uh, no, Same situation there. Check that out if you can. All right. Uh, we're going to talk autism in just a minute. There has been a surge of autism diagnoses over the last couple of decades. What's driving the uptick in autism? And what about uh, folks like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and others who have claimed that there's some sort of a link between autism rates and certain vaccinations? We're going to get into it with somebody who has spent the last couple of decades becoming a becoming a soldier in this war and becoming very very expert in this subject and i'm sure if she could have done it another way she probably would have done that we'll explain in just a moment this is the other side of midnight straight ahead the other side of midnight with frank morano Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's been seven hours and fifty days since you took your love away. Shanae O'Connor, nothing compares to you. Unfortunately, lost her at uh, far too young an age, the age of 56 years old, and uh, a great musical artist, really just a, a five-star talent, who had quite a run, quite a run, uh, clearly made some m- missteps throughout her career uh, that probably hurt her. But as far as talent goes, I don't think there's any disputing her talent. One of the issues that we've been focusing on a bit from time to time, and I've been paying attention to in my personal life, is the issue of autism. I feel like when I was growing up, autism was incredibly rare. And on my block, on my block, within, you turn your head, and there's one house that way, one house that way, there's two severely autistic boys. And uh, recently we explored this and discussed it and took calls on wh- why this is the case. But when you look at the data, it's not just my anecdotal experience. 
in a pair of new reports, one focused on eight-year-olds and one focused on four-year-olds, the CDC found that as of last year, one out of every 36 children has autism. Think about that. Now, that is a big increase from the estimate just uh, the year before that, where it was one in 44, which was a huge increase from 2006, which is one in 110. So why are there so many new autistic cases? Is it a reflection of better diagnosis? Is it a reflection of overdiagnosis? Is it a, is it a question of some trends going on in society that is causing more people to become autistic? If so, what is it? Well, somebody that has uh, thought about these issues a great deal and written about them a bit is Jill Escher. She's the president of the National Council on Severe Autism and a board member of the Autism Society in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jill, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Frank, and hi to all the sleepless New Yorkers out there from California. And we got a lot of listeners around the country, so there's a lot of sleep-deprived folks all over the country (laughs) that you're talking to. Uh, Now, tell folks about your own experience with, with your children. When did you first realize that you were going to be the parent of an autistic child? Yeah, well, we have three children, and um, my second son was born in 1999. He's now 24. Um, But as he was developing, he was, uh, we didn't know it at the time, but basically he wasn't hitting all of his, really any of his cognitive or language or social milestones. So like when you have a little baby, you know, they'll little, they'll coo at you, they'll babble, they'll make eye contact, they'll respond to their name, they'll play with toys, you know, they'll at a certain point um, start kind of pointing and gesturing, they'll play peekaboo, all that stuff. Our son did none of that. And, you know, at the time, of course, I didn't even know what autism was. And I would think, well, why is this guy, like, constantly playing with, like, sand in his fingers? Or why is he always flapping when he looks at a fan? Or why is he staring at a crack in a sidewalk? Why is he so irritable? You know, and and why was he plugging his ears? You know, all these things. We thought maybe he was very sensitive and artistic, like we didn't know. Um, And then, you know, finally, we complained and complained to our pediatrician, and and the pediatrician brushed off our concerns. He said, oh, no, you know, he's such a healthy boy. He's so robust. He'll be fine. You know, some boys develop very slowly, and some boys develop language late. Don't worry about it. But we kept pestering the pediatrician, and finally, he said, you know, something is up here. Um, and he referred us to a neurologist. And as I wrote in that piece in the free, in the free press that came out last week, the neurologist basically looked at him and in like one half of a second said, oh, you know, he has autism. He has it in spades. So, um, you know, it, it, it was a hard pill to swallow, as you could imagine, um, because it came out of nowhere, right? I had normal pregnancy. He was a healthy guy. There was nothing like autism up our family trees. Um, but we had him evaluated and reevaluated, and everyone came to the same conclusion, you know, that he had a very you know, serious, a very significant degree of autism. Then our daughter was born um, some years later. And of course, by that time, we knew what the signs sure. were. 
And, you know, we saw by the time she was about 16 months that she wasn't now, developing let me conversational inter- language. Let me, let me yeah. interrupt if I can for, for a moment. Of course. Were you concerned, given the experience with your, your son, were you concerned while you were pregnant, you know, several years later, that that, that child was, there was a chance that that child would have been autistic as well? Or what, what were doctors telling you about the likelihood of having a second autistic child? Very good question. So we did talk to a number of doctors and researchers because by that time I had met a number of autism researchers. And at that time, um, it was thought that there was about a 3% chance of having a recurrence, right, in, in an additional sibling. And, um, a, and a, lesser, a lesser recurrence if it's a girl. So everybody told us, you know, lightning doesn't strike twice. Whatever happened to Johnny seemed to be a very random thing. You know, it's very unlikely to happen again. So I I wasn't overly worried when I was pregnant with her, especially when I found out I was having a girl. That was an enormous relief. I don't know if people know this, but um, the ratio of males to females with autism is four to one. So, uh, you know, as she, she was born extremely healthy, you know, not a problem. Nobody really, you know, was concerned about her. But by the time she was, you know, I'd say like, you know, 16 months, it was clear that she wasn't developing, you know, language, conversation, reciprocal interaction. She wasn't playing with toys. You know, she wasn't even watching Elmo. She couldn't even grasp that. And so, um, you know, by that time we were... Um, you know, we, we kind of knew what, what we were getting into with her. Now, so you then learned that you were not only a mother of three, but two of your three children were, were it sounds like, pretty severely autistic, right? Correct. And now yes. I, I, my wife and I have one child that's 20 months old. This takes, and as far as I know, he's he's uh, perfectly healthy and we don't see, you know, any signs of um, anything like autism or anything along those lines. Knock on wood. But it takes all of our energy to keep up with him, to chase after him, to make sure he's not throwing things everywhere, writing on the walls, doing all sorts of other things, getting into trouble. It's exhausting. It's it's, it's a second full time job. Now, that's one. I can't imagine having three and <laughs> let alone having two that are autistic. How much mm-hmm. of a challenge has this been for you as a parent? I quite frankly can't imagine. Oh, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I mean, I had 20 years of trauma, you know, daily trauma. And, um, you know, I I, I always thought, like, I I had more trauma in a day with my son than most people have in, you know, a year or many, many years of their lives. It was just um, ongoing. And and this happens all the time. Now, my, my kids are very different. They both have severe autism. They're both nonverbal. But my daughter is actually quite mellow, you know, quite easygoing and adaptable. And in fact, we just, you know, this evening we went out to a concert together. We danced together. We had dinner together. You know, it, you wouldn't know anything was wrong unless you tried to talk to her. Um, but my son, on the other hand, um, you know, was and, and continues to have very, very challenging behaviors. And he was extremely destructive. I mean, uh, the furniture in our house was destroyed. You know, he would rip up the family photos. He would chew on the walls, chew on the door frames. Um, he would throw things over the fences. He would, um, you know, get into, you know, the, the food or the soap or the toothpaste and smear it all over the place. I mean, he, he was a, a whole other level of autism. 
them. And um, it was exhausting. And he, also, he didn't sleep. And so you, you would go days, weeks, months with minimal sleep. And it, it took a, an enormous toll. You know, I, I had a, a, a job. I was working as a lawyer. And my husband just looked at me one day and said, no, no more. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you can't do, sure. do all this. This imagine. is crazy. I can imagine. Yeah. And I know you alluded to your daughter and that you guys went to a, a dance today. I know she's 17 and your, your son is, uh, I think, 24? Yep, correct. Okay. So how are, they, how are they doing today? I know you mentioned that your daughter is uh, pretty mellow. How are both of your children doing today? Yeah. So, you know, my daughter, you know, is, is 17. You know, she, she remains nonverbal. Um, she has very few life skills at all. Like she, she's a very agreeable person. She doesn't look like she has a developmental disability. She's physically quite normal. Um, but, um, you know, despite really intensive, um, therapies and, and, and schooling, um, she has very few independent living skills. Like she can't dress herself. She can't, you know, attend to her own hygiene. We need to kind of help her with her bathing and her teeth brushing and everything else. Um, she can't read. She can't write. Um, she can't talk, obviously. Um, you know, she, she really lacks abstract thought at all. So, uh, you know, she, her, her cognitive level is probably a, kind of like an 18-month level, which is kind of astonishing. Now, on the other hand... I can take her skiing and she's an excellent skier, wow. right? I can take her ice skating and she's a great ice skater. You know, she, she can do a lot of things, but, you know, in terms of just sort of age level functionality, I mean, she's light years away from where her peers are. We're talking with Jill Escher. She's the president of the National Council on Severe Autism. Jill, based on when you first learned that you were going to be the mom of an autistic boy, what kind of progress has been made in terms of therapy, in terms of medication, in terms of treatment for someone that's autistic from now uh, as as compared to 2001? Oh. God, you know, I, I hate to say this, and I don't like to be Debbie Downer, but, you know, we basically have the same toolbox today that we had, you know, when Johnny was first diagnosed in 2001. I mean, there have been modest changes along the way in terms of behavioral therapies and access to behavioral therapies. There have been modest changes in um, how we use different medications. Um but, you know, for the most part, we have the same tools um, that we had back back then. There has not been tremendous progress on the treatment front. Now, you know, my son, my, my daughter, you know, is not on any medications at all. You know, we, we've, tr- we've had to try various medications with my son to really control his, his self-injury, his property destruction, his aggression, his elopement. When I, say, when I mean elopement, um, these kids wander away often. I think you know a lot of them end up drowning. Um, and uh, with, with Johnny, you know, we're, we're, he's now on a low dose of an antipsychotic drug, um, which I hated to do to him because these things have side effects. But, um, you know, it's... It, it's not. It's nothing novel. I mean, this was. This is the only drug mm. that's been available that's FDA approved for use explicitly in autism. There hasn't been anything else added. Um, you know, in these twenty years, I, I alluded to uh, some statistics which seem to show a pretty significant increase in autism among children. 
uh, when I did this on the radio previously, a bunch of callers called in and said something to the effect of, no, no, there are still just as many autistic people as there always were. We're just seeing better diagnosis of it now or maybe even overdiagnosis. From your research uh, and your work, Jill, has there been an autism spike in this country? There is unequivocally overwhelming evidence for a very true and very dramatic increase in autism over the past 30 years. And you know, it doesn't matter where you're looking at the data. You can be looking at the data from the school systems. You can be looking at the data from the Medicaid systems, from the Social Security system, you know, from um, you know, CDC surveillance, from uh, a- any system. It, they show this level of increase even when you are keeping the definition of autism constant. So when you're not like you using a broader definition, when you're using a narrow definition, for example, like a developmental disability level of autism, you see this exponential increase. It is absolutely undeniable. And, you know, I I think one thing that I really emphasized in in my piece in in the free press, you know, where, where you saw my name was that, um, you know, it, it's like this, this major game of gaslighting going on that, you know, we're saying like, oh, autism's always been here, these numbers, and we never even noticed it before, and we use different labels, and, you know, now we're just like, we're so aware. And it's like, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that. There's strong, strong, strong evidence for these actual increases. And, like, I'm going to give you just, like, one little tiny example from the state of New York. Um, I could give you more examples from California as well. But even in the past four years, um, you have an OPWDD, which is the Office for Persons with Developmental Mm -hmm. Disabilities, and they serve people with a, a very significant level of developmental disability, including autism, including cerebral palsy, including epilepsy, intellectual disability, et cetera. Well, autism has gone up from about 20,000 in 2016 to about 27,000 in 2020. Okay, and you might say, oh, well, that's really interesting. That's a pretty sharp increase over just four years for a very, very significant disability. And then you might say, well, you know, it must be shifts from other categories. But you don't see. You can look at the data. It's online. There are no shifts from the other categories. The other categories have remained flat or even have increased a little bit. You intellectual, intellectual disability has even increased a little bit. So there's no category swapping going on that can explain this. You know, in California, um, about 33 years ago, we had whatever, something like 39,000, I'm not 30, I'm sorry, 3,900 cases of autism in our developmental disability system. And it's more than 160,000 cases today. I mean, massive increase. That's a 50-fold increase in cases. And um, there's enough, and, and our system has actually done an internal look to see, like, why is this happening? Like, are we just diagnosing it more? And they aren't finding that. So, no, it, it, that does not increase. This does not explain the increase. We just don't understand what's happening. One of the th- we're talking with Jill Escher. She's uh, president of the National Council on Severe Autism and now the uh, the mother of two autistic young adults. The the one of the things you touch upon is the recent rise of what they call the neurodiversity identity movement, where yeah. autism is is uh, seen as something to be celebrated as a natural difference, not investigated, prevented, or treated. Is that a positive development? 
You know, in one sense, it has one positive element, which is, you know, there are people with high-functioning autism who've been bullied and who've been called losers and who have very poor self-esteem and they might have no friends or they might, you know, feel kind of adrift in the world and they have poor, you know, functioning skills. Um, You know, neurodiversity is a kind of a therapeutic paradigm, I think that is actually very helpful for some people to kind of feel more self-empowered and to feel more sense of a belonging and to feel better and to find a community, right? And and to find accommodations that they might need at work, right? Like maybe they have bad social skills, but they're really good at making pizza or whatever, right? Well, fine, you know, they can they can use that as a way to to gain accommodations and acceptance. And I'm I'm actually 100% for that. I'm for anything that helps anyone with autism, you know, have a better life. So, um that's sort of positive. The negative part about it is that it's sort of, it, it comes with this belief system that's entirely wrong that you know that autism is perfectly natural that it's always been here you know that it's part of just normal human variation that it's nothing to be terribly alarmed about and that our job is just to accept autism our job isn't to understand what causes it our job isn't to prevent it our job isn't to treat it so it has some very very negative consequences and i'm very concerned about that uh, understandable. Let, let me ask you uh, before we run out of time here. I could keep you for a whole hour, and I, I do hope you'll. <laughs> I do hope you'll come back. Let me ask you about a couple of theories that we hear about what might be responsible for the uptick in autism. One theory, which is getting sort of renewed attention these days because of the uh, presidential candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has to do with uh, a link to vaccines. Here was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Megyn Kelly's show talking about a 1999 uh, CDC study? I think all of them. I think these impacts and what the science shows, all these impacts are cumulative. And our kids today are sick because we are bombarding their immune systems with these toxics that they simply cannot handle. Vaccines is part of that story. And it's probably, in my view, the largest single cause, although all of them are very big. Now, in 1999, CDC was also alarmed by the same thing that you described with the parents. So they decided to do an internal study of their own database, which is called the Vaccine Safety Data Link. It is the it's the medical records, including the vaccination records of 10 million kids from the 10 biggest HMOs. So it's all the cumulative medical records from all those HMOs and are all housed in one place. And they studied, they said, let's see if these mercury vaccines are causing autism. So they look at one vaccine, they can look at every vaccine record, and then they can look at your medical claims to see if you, you know, had seizure disorders or allergies, or if you have an autism diagnosis. They can do a cluster analysis, and they can look for associations. So they looked at the hepatitis B vaccine, which is loaded with mercury during the first 30 days of life. Kids, they looked at kids who got it during the first 30 days. They compared them to kids who did not get it during the first 30 days, who got it later or didn't get it at all. And here's what they found. The relative risk of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years and lung cancer is 10. 
This was 11.35. They is that, knew. Is that- so, Jill, I know he, there was a lot there, but he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And I know a lot of people subscribe to that. What's your view on what he said there? with that CDC study, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything about what he said. I don't know if he's accurately portraying, you know, the, the study. But, you know, it, it's pretty clear that the mercury, um, well, it was, you know, the, the, the type of mercury that was used as a preservative in vaccines um, is not the cause of autism. Um, even when they removed that you know, samarosol from the vaccines, the autism rate continued to go up at pace. It didn't make a dent um, in, in the increasing rates. Um, in addition, you know, there's really no um, nexus to a biological mechanism you know, when it came to, to the, the mercury. I mean, mercury poisoning is a very real thing. And, you know, it has certain consequences, a certain phenotype, and that doesn't map to the phenotype of autism. Jill, um, we're going to um, we're going to have to end it there. I got to have to uh, pause there. But sure. uh, let's let's talk again in a couple of weeks, if you're willing, if we can get you to stay up late again. I appreciate the conversation very much. <laughs> Yeah, send the coffee, okay? All right, <laughs> you got thank it. you. Thank you. Frank. Jill Escher. Comments, questions, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. In just a couple of minutes, we are going to do a full hour analyzing what happened yesterday in Washington, D.C. I tell you, that is the most fascinating two and a half hours of watching Congress that I have ever seen. And I am talking, of course, about yesterday's UFO slash UAP hearing. If you have questions about it, we have a group of experts that can answer them. Until next hour, keep asking questions. The Other Side of Midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Well, yesterday, the impossible happened. People like me, who have observed Congress for decades and have observed the increasingly polarized partisan nature of Congress, you know, years ago, by the way, just in that in that realm, before about 10, 12 years ago, every major piece of legislation, everything, single one, you want to talk about the war in Iraq, you want to talk about tax cuts, you want to talk about Social Security, every major piece of legislation was bipartisan in nature somehow. At least there was some, if it was a Republican president, he had at least some Democratic support. If there was a Democratic president, he had at least some Republican support. That all ended about uh, 12 years ago. That it, We live in a town where the Republicans and the Democrats are the Hatfields and the McCoys. And I've been wondering for years, what can possibly get these partisan warriors who disagree on everything and whose political future seems tied to villainizing the other side of the aisle, what could possibly get them to lay down their swords and actually work together in a nonpartisan and bipartisan manner? Well, yesterday we got our answer because apparently when there is a serious national security threat that may or may not involve extraterrestrials, Democrats and Republicans can put aside their bickering and actually try to get some answers. Yesterday, the House Security, the House Oversight Subcommittee on National Security held a hearing on UFOs and other unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAP, and it featured all three major whistleblowers alleging that the government withheld information and eyewitness accounts of such phenomena. This hearing was captivating. I found the statements from the members of Congress at the opening pretty interesting. I found the testimony from the witnesses absolutely fascinating. If you didn't get to hear it, this is the kind of thing that uh, that you were in store for. Here's Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, questioning David Grush, who's a former veteran intelligence officer, very accomplished guy. He's one of the more recent whistleblowers about the government actually having non-human material. Do you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. I tell you, if we lived in any other era, where Hunter Biden's plea deals were not being thrown out and Donald Trump is getting indicted every other week. If we lived at any other time in American history, that statement would be splashed on the front page of every newspaper in America above the fold. Here to break down the significance of what we heard yesterday, we have assembled an all-star team 
of experts. Four gentlemen who have very different sets of expertise, very different sets of, uh, of very different backgrounds, and who come from different places on this issue. But all of them have delved into this in a big way. They've all been on this program before. This is the first time we've ever had the privilege of having everybody on together. I am joined by Nick Pope, journalist, UFO expert, and former employee of the British Ministry of Defense. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Joined by Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author of many books, including The Day After Roswell and the publisher of UFO Magazine, the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia. Hello, Bill. Hello, Frank. Good morning. And uh, good morning to Ron James, the director of media relations for MUFON, uh, a filmmaker, an on-camera personality, a writer, an editor. And his latest film was actually cited by Congressman Burkett in yesterday's hearing, Accidental Truth. Hello there, Ron. Hi there. How's it going? It's going great. And uh, obviously, we can't have this kind of a discussion without including at least one veteran. And we have a former U.S. Navy service member and author of the book, Initiated, UAP, Dreams, Depression, Delusion, Shadow People, Psychosis, Sleep Paralysis, and Pandemics, Matthew Roberts. Matthew, it's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Uh, Let's delve right into this. The guy in Congress who seems to have made this a passion project for his entire tenure in Congress seems to be uh, Tennessee Republican Tim Burkett. He was questioning David Grush, who, again, is a a decorated veteran, has served in places like in Afghanistan. He's a senior intelligence officer. And he's asking Grush about how long the government has known about this sort of a thing. Has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial, otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? Uh, I like to use the term non-human. I don't like to denote origin. Keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Right. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, like I've dis- discussed publicly uh, previously, 1930s. 1930s. Let me begin with uh, Nick Pope, who, as I mentioned, worked for the British Ministry of Defense. Nick, whenever we've discussed this subject, I think you've always maintained a healthy degree of skepticism, which has given you a, a large amount of credibility with many of the purported debunkers in our audience. Give me your overall take on the three witnesses that we heard from and the hearing overall. Well, I was very pleased with what happened. I thought it was an excellent hearing. I thought it was a great mix of witnesses. We had two very uh, credentialed, experienced uh, former U.S. Navy pilots talking about their actual sightings, encounters with these uh, mystery objects uh, that, of course, are not just seen by pilots, but tracked on radar and uh, filmed sometimes on forward-looking infrared camera. And then, of course, uh, all eyes were on David Grush, the former intelligence community officer who served on the UAP task force. And, and his testimony, of course, very different, uh, talking about how uh, he has, as part of his work on the UAP task force, to his satisfaction, verified these rumors that we've all heard, that uh, there are programs that deal with things like crash retrievals, that there are craft 
that there are bodies. And my goodness, uh, I don't think you often hear phrases like uh, non-human intelligence and biologics in Congress, but but there we are. So a historic day. Uh, That is for sure. Uh, Bill Burns, what was your take on the witnesses we heard from yesterday? I had um, I had three takes. The first was that this committee hearing reminded me of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, 40 years ago, said, wouldn't our petty differences disappear if we were faced with a threat from off this planet? And that's exactly what this committee hearing was. The petty differences just disappeared. Two, it was stunning to hear, stunning to hear witnesses talk to congressional representatives about non-human entities, or they're calling them, I believe they are human entities, but um, alien entities that are retreating other alien entities with the cooperation and participation of our government. That was, that in a congressional record is stunning. Then the third is a big surprise. The big surprise is this. Why is it that this committee seem to have drawn a bright red line from 2015 forward, but all the UFO events dating all the way back to World War II, Roswell, all the Air Force bases, none of that was discussed. And yet everything that was discussed at this meeting already appeared in books. So there's not one jot of new information. It was all old stuff. That's what struck me. Ron James, your film, Accidental Truth, was not only mentioned by Congressman Burkett, but Congressman Burkett is actually featured in your documentary. Tell me about these witnesses. What possible motive would any of the three of them have to be dishonest? Uh, These guys have no reason to be dishonest. The... um the the story that's being told by uh, David Grush is the same story that we unpeel in, in Accidental Truth. And Ralph Blumenthal, who's featured in the movie, was the one who broke that story. And, of course, Nick Pope is in the film. He did a fantastic job with me. Um, and uh, a lot of people have pulled me aside because we're, MUFON is in Washington, D.C., very active in what's going on right now. Um, I've, I've been pulled aside and told that this film has been circulated among Congress. I have video that I'm about ready to release um, within the next day or two of me sitting in Congressman Tim Burchett's office and briefing him on all of the stuff that Bill Burns was talking about, everything from Roswell all the way forward to the recent hearings and why they were um, – you know, pretty much a whitewash. And so we know and can prove that these guys know this this information or at least have been briefed on it. And so, um, the, you know, David Grush has no reason to lie. He's part of this, what I still believe is a little bit of a loosely organized rollout of information. And, um, and so I think that it's still going. Matthew Roberts, uh, you served in the Navy. One of the common threads that we heard from all three witnesses, uh, Ryan Graves, David Fravor, and uh, David Grush, 
was the issue of a stigma. They're all concerned that they've been viewed differently by some of their peers, and they believe that there's a reluctance to come forward with certain sightings or certain experiences because of the fear of being stigmatized by either the public or within the military. Curious if you experienced that at all and what you thought of the hearing. Um, actually, I did not experience any kind of stigma whatsoever. I mean, I was working at O&I um, when all of this was starting to break. So it was pretty much common knowledge that all of this stuff was real. Um, so when I spoke about it, there was no one that was shocked by anything I had to say. But uh, my, my takeaway from the hearing is just that I am looking forward to much more. Apparently, the Senate is going to be picking this up as well. And uh, I am ready for this all to come out. All right. A lot of other areas that I want to explore with you. Obviously, David Grush was sort of the newest person that testified here. Aside from that News Nation interview and that uh, that article that he did with Ralph Blumenthal, we hadn't heard very much from him. Uh, here was Nancy Mace uh, asking David Grush about uh, having contact with extraterrestrials. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. One of the things that uh, he seemed to say in that News Nation piece, uh, Ron James, was that he didn't have any eyewitness encounters himself. This was all stuff that he had heard secondhand. Uh, A lot of the skeptics in our audience may say, well, look, if he didn't see any aliens himself, if he didn't see any non-human aircraft himself, uh, what makes this any better than a, a game of telephone? Uh, what about that objection that some people may raise, Ron? Well, the fact of the matter is is that um, David Grush has been embedded in the intelligence community. He was also affiliated with one of these front-facing uh, research units to roll out uh, the to start supposedly investigating the situation. And he was digging. And the, we know that there. We know that this stuff's true because we present a lot of evidence in the film. That it's true that there was crash materials uh, recovered. It's true that there's been debris. It's true that there's been reverse engineering programs, and it's probably true that there has been biology. And so none of this is 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 news. Um, we lay out a really good case for it in the film, and David is plugged in. And the fact that he wasn't given like taken to see a spaceship or whatever. That doesn't really pose a problem for me at the moment, what, because what is a victory in this is the fact that somebody at his level is getting the ability to go out and, and talk to people about this. And he has names and he has receipts. And we know that he's provided much more documentation to uh, to select members of Congress, the people on the Intelligence Committee, etc. And as they unveil and unroll what the actual parameters and legalities are going to be with this whistleblower uh, uh, law that is, is built into some legislation and how that's actually going to work and what the legalities are going to be and what you can say and where you can say it, we're going to be barraged with people coming forward once these protections are established and everybody knows what the rules are. Right now, we don't have that. And that's why David was very careful today to keep referring back to his News Nation interview, because we know that that interview was basically questions and answers almost verbatim had to be approved by the Pentagon. And so he couldn't just go and and 
reply stuff off the top of his head. And so that's why instead of re-answering questions, he kept referring back. But um, we're going to hear a lot more from Grush, and we're going to hear a lot more from the people that are investigating who he's talking about because he has the names one of the things that we'll try and do throughout the hours if people have questions this is the group of people that you want to answer them uh, if people have questions they can call in at 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-9222 bill burns what about the fact that uh, david grush didn't say that he saw any of these biological beings himself does that uh, take away at all from the significance of what he said yesterday no not at all um, the, 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 the stories of biological beings, I think, I think they're us. That's, that's just my opinion, but the stories of biological entities that came out of these craft have been circulating in intelligence circles ever since the 1950s. The story was that the first people to see, well, after the crash at Roswell, the first people to see a real biological entity that was being held by the United States government was at Wright Field in 1948. It was the National Air War College class of 1948. And one of the members of that class was a lieutenant colonel called Marion Magruder, Black Mac Magruder, who basically told his children that they were led into a room where they saw these artifacts from Roswell. He described them. Jesse Marcel said to me that he recognized them. Jesse Marcel was the son who examined them when his father brought them back from the crash site. And <clears throat> this person said that he was led into a room. They all were. And there was this entity. And he said the stunning thing about this entity was, one, it looked just like us. Two, he said it was trying to communicate with him. And he said that he remembered that entity until the day he died in um, 1998. Uh, Nick Pope, in so the, we've known about them. In the case of uh, Ryan Graves and David Fravor, one of them was serving in San Diego. One of them was uh, stationed in Virginia when they saw very real sightings that they couldn't explain. I, I believe Ryan Graves said that the movements that he saw the one vehicle making, the one aerial phenomenon making, was something that our government has nothing that's capable of doing that. And it's superior to anything that we're likely to develop in the next 10 years. I'm curious, what are the alternative explanations to their sightings, the Fravor and Graves sightings of these these flying vehicles that uh, they can't explain how they work or how they move or what source of propulsion they have? Well, I guess really the only realistic theory is that this is some sort of secret prototype aircraft, missile, or drone that either the U.S., government has developed and and then these ufo stories are being talked up almost as a cover for that to throw people off the scent or an adversary uh probably china possibly russia um has come up with something but i think that's unlikely for a number of reasons um there are some other things that explain some pilot sightings you know in 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 some instances you will get sensor errors false returns on radar but i always look for cases like the ones that we heard of today where pilots 
physically see objects, but simultaneously they're tracked on radar, sometimes they're on electro-optical, sometimes on weapon seeker, sometimes even on satellites. And this is something that the preliminary assessment written in June 2021 by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence highlighted when they talked about these things being seen across multiple sensor platforms. So you've got the corroboration there. Very important. Uh, We're going to continue with your questions for Nick Pope, William Burns, Ron James, and Matthew Roberts in a moment. 800-848-9222. We'll play you some other highlights from the hearing. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, the morning after the blockbuster, I consider it a blockbuster, I'll ask these gentlemen if they agree, UFO hearing in Congress. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. suits that's why nobody knew perfect haircuts looking smooth just like me and you they looked so much like they belonged nobody looked their way the aliens came in business suits business suits business suits the aliens this is the other side of midnight suits. i'm frank morano uh, analyzing the incredible ufo hearings that uh, took place in washington yesterday Congress. Here to help us do it is Nick Pope, former employee of the British Ministry of Defense, Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author, Ron James, uh, the director of media relations for MUFON, and a documentarian whose film Accidental Truth got a shout out by Congressman Burkett today, and Matthew Roberts, a former Naval Service member and an author in his own right. Gentlemen, one of the things that we kept hearing from both the witnesses and the member of Congress, was the issue of transparency. Both Democrat and Republican uh, mentioned that the Pentagon has been stonewalling them, the intelligence community has been stonewalling them, NASA has even been stonewalling them. Congressman Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from the state of Maryland, he was uh, talking with uh, Ryan Graves about the importance of transparency. Are there common characteristics to the UAPs that have been cited by different pilots? And can you describe what the convergence of descriptions is? Certainly. Uh, We were primarily seeing dark gray or black cubes inside of a clear sphere. I'm sorry, dark gray or black cubes? Yes, inside of a clear sphere, where the apex or tips of the cube were touching the inside of that sphere. And that was primarily what was being reported when we were able to gain a visual tally of these objects. That occurred over almost eight years. And as far as I know, it's still occurring. Um, So I take it that you're arguing what we need is real transparency in a reporting system so we can get some clarity on what's going on out there because there are many pilots in your situation, um, but we should have a a way of developing a 
systematic inventory of all of such encounters. Is that right? Yes, and I think we need both transparency and the reporting. We have the reporting, but we need to make sure that information can be promulgated to commercial aviation as well as the rest of the populace. Matthew Roberts, what did, what did you make of what the members of Congress were saying that these agencies have not been cooperative in handing over information? And do, what do you think a better reporting system would look like? Um, well, the reporting system, as I understand it, that's set up right now is uh, one that is meant to discourage reporting, actually, uh, in that the pilots have to fill out this long, a big, long form. Uh, they're, they're then interrogated for eight hours about the encounter. Uh, and then at the end of that, they get some kind of mark in their record. So uh, anything other than that um, <laughs> would probably be a better reporting um, mechanism. But, you know, we, we've really got to get to uh, the bottom of this and understand um, that there are elements, right? We, we talk about the intelligence community covering this up. It's not the intelligence community writ large. There are elements within the intelligence community that are covering this up. Um, and so, you, you know, that, that, that's, that's basically where we have to go with this. Ron James, one uh, one cynic emailed me after these hearings were going on and said, what a bust for believers. None of the witnesses had any proof. It was a clown show. All they helped are the military industrial complex get more money to investigate, quote unquote, investigate this garbage. Now, interestingly enough, I heard from a lot of members of the UFO public that were also a little disappointed because there wasn't more groundbreaking information. Ron James, did you find this hearing to be at all anticlimactic, given the big buildup that we'd had from Congressman Burkett and others? Well, um, I might mention Tim's last name is actually Burchett. It was, I appreciate so. that. I'm sure he does, too. <laughs> yeah, because I know when I interviewed him, he corrected me about three or four times. So, um, All right. So what we just got today was a high-ranking, plugged-in government official who nobody has been able to discredit, finally admitting that there is a non-human intelligence at work here. Now, I don't see how anybody can possibly be disappointed by this. It's not this big, giant disclosure that everybody wants. It's not Steve Bassett's big D disclosure. We're not there yet. But what we got was a quantum leap in this information and it's only going to get better the cynics are going to continue to be cynics they're going to do it no matter what if if somebody would have walked in with an alien in a in a petri dish or a a jar full of alcohol they would have said it was fake if a flying saucer appears over the white house it'll be cg so you know there's a certain amount of people that are never going to be convinced but we need to understand that what we got today was a, a a leap in the official record of disclosure unfolding. And that was priceless. It was way better than the other hearings. Those were pretty disappointing. But at least today, somebody with some authority went on the record and said, yes, the crash debris is real. Crash retrievals are real. Technology reverse engineering programs are real. And non-human intelligence being um, uh, encountered and biological samples being taken is all real. This is the beginning of this fleshing out. 
Nick Pope, uh, to Ron James's point there about this all being put on the record, even though a lot of this is information that we'd heard before, testifying before Congress under oath is a lot different than giving an interview to 60 Minutes or the New York Times or News Nation, isn't it? It Absolutely. It's one thing to talk to the media. It's quite another to stand in front of Congress under oath and uh, put your testimony into the congressional record like this. I, I should just say a couple of other things about David Grush that might be quite useful for, for people if they're not aware. Firstly, I think he's rather more senior than a lot of people realize. He was a, a GS-15, which is uh, the, the equivalent of a, a, a full bird colonel in the military. That's one point. The other point is I want to address this, this point from the skeptics that, well, all, all his information is, is secondhand. Well, yes and no. When I worked at the Ministry of Defense in the headquarters building, I worked, for example, with a lot of people who handled nuclear policy. I guarantee very few of those hundreds of people had actually ever seen or touched a nuclear bomb. But, of course, nuclear weapons are a reality. So you can work on an issue at the heart of that issue on the policy side without necessarily having touched the hardware. So that's not the showstopper that I think some of the skeptics and cynics uh, think it is. And uh, Bill Burns, what about these gripes from UFO world that you alluded to this sort of at the beginning at your first statement that this is stuff that we've already heard? Did you find the the hearing anticlimactic at all? Only in so far as what everyone was saying this was a first was not a first. For example, let's talk about biologics. There were um, congressional hearings under Gerald Ford when he was majority leader all the way back in the 1960s after the Hillsdale, Michigan. And the people in Hillsdale, Michigan, who testified before Congress, talked about alien creatures. That's why, um, uh, 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 that's why um, J. Allen Hynek, who was working for Project Blue Book at the time, called these swamp gas of these entities. Um, back in the 1970s, uh, Professor James McDonald at the University of Arizona um, talked about biological entities that were that people have seen, and specifically the Lani Zamora case in uh, Socorro, New Mexico. So again, it's wonderful that we're talking about biological entities and entities coming back and picking up their bodies. This was the basis for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Of the, uh, but um, the, the, um, the story is that we've heard all this before in UFO circles. This is the first time in this go-round we're hearing this again. Uh, Ron James, I feel like we're talking to two different worlds, not only we in this conversation on the radio now, but uh, the people that watch this hearing. There's UFO world that uh, that believes we're visited regularly by extraterrestrials. And then there's uh, the general population, many of whom remain skeptical or some of whom remain outright hostile to the idea that uh, there might have been extraterrestrial visits to this planet. Did yesterday's hearing do anything to win the general public over to the uh, side of being a believer, for lack of a better term? 
Well, I think that the, if you look at the um, surveys that are being taken about public uh, support for the idea that we're not alone in the universe and that maybe we've been visited and that maybe the government knows a lot more than they're telling us, uh, I think that it's a almost a small majority of people that actually do believe that. We are now in a time when we have entire generations raised on ancient aliens. And um, it, just to speak real quickly to what Bill just said, he's absolutely right that this stuff, these, these, this lore has been presented in official capacities, but it hasn't been presented by somebody with as much political and intelligence community gravitas as fact as it was by David Grush. Other people that have made these testimonies do not have his credibility, and that's why I think it is truly a milestone um, that stands alone. But the, uh, the general public is getting it, and what we have to face now is what is going to be the context of this information being absorbed into the vernacular, because that's going to determine what the reaction is going to be. And uh, yeah, I think that ever since 2017, this this whole topic has gained a whole new level of credibility. But as I'm sure Bill can can reaffirm for all of us, it's the same story we heard from General Sanford in the 50s. And, and this whole thing's almost been recycled almost verbatim. And we pointed out in the film. So he's right in a lot of ways about that. And this is a new public getting what they think is new information, but it's really not. It's it's a whitewashed, rinsed off story that we've been told before. Matthew Roberts, with that in mind, what Ron James and Bill Burns just said there, that uh, we've heard a lot of this before and we've even seen, uh, you know, stories similar to what we've heard yesterday come out before. What would you like to see the next steps be in terms of congressional action or governmental action? Where do we go from here? Well, I think uh, I think Congress is going to lead that. And one of the things that they talked about today, some of these members, is that they're going to have field hearings possibly at these sites where these crash craft are kept. Um, there's certainly a lot of uh, footage and photographs that don't need to be um, classified that could be released. Um, they're going to set up a committee um, that will go through hours of videos, uh, uh, multiple photographs. They alluded to um, satellite imagery, um, and hopefully, this committee will be able to declassify some of that stuff so the public can see it. Uh, Nick Pope, we also heard from Senator Schumer last week. He's got an amendment in the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act, which would sort of create a, which would mandate that everything that can be declassified ought to be shared with the public. Is that a is that a big deal? Yes, it's a huge deal. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms that one hears from time to time is that some of the congressional representatives who are speaking out on this are, are mavericks. And, I, you know, I'm not going to speak to that. But look, when you have the, the Senate majority leader um, putting, putting his name to this, you've got the big guns in on this. And, and there are other big guns, too. So, some uh, very, very kind of political heavyweights on both sides of the aisle. So this is a big deal. And, and absolutely, you're, you're right to mention what's going on right now uh, with, with the drafting of material for next year's National Defense Authorization Act. And that is 64 pages worth of amendment. And, and it's staggering going through it. Uh, they really, what they are trying to do, in, in a nutshell, is, is paint the government into a corner and give them no way out of this. 
All right. A lot of people are eager to uh, chat with all three, all four of you and ask a few questions. We have three open lines if people want to jump on board, 800-848-9222. Before we go to the phones, though, Bill, uh, Bill Burns, one of the one of the things that I was hopeful about, and I think even one of the members of Congress mentioned this, is just by having this hearing and seeing these people speak out that there's more there's a little bit of a destigmatizing of this. There's a little bit of a more, a more likelihood that both commercial airline pilots and military pilots will come forward with what they're seeing. Do you believe that's going to happen more after yesterday, Bill? Yes, it will, but it's not going to make that much of a difference because disclosure about these events, the, I'm sorry, the disclosure about the truth behind these events, and we know the truth behind these events, but the disclosure of that truth is not going to come top down. Joe Biden or another president is not going to stand in, in, um, at the podium and, and disclose what he calls the truth. It's just not going to happen. Disclosure will come from the bottom up. It'll be a shared consciousness over and over again, hearings like this, being on the front page of a newspaper, because what's happening is that the Overton window, the window of reality in which things are deemed real and not real, that's expanding to include Paranormal events, especially UFOs. 800-848-9222. If you have a question, let me begin with Sharon in New Jersey. Hello, Sharon. Yes, good Good evening. Uh, good morning. Uh, I would like to have a question answered by these specialists, um, which, which would be the experimentation of humans who have been abducted uh, onto these uh alien uh, craft uh, and uh, the possible hybridization program that uh, can, uh, occurs as a result of experimentation with their, um, with their genes and uh, other uh, parts uh, regarding this. Uh, Matthew Roberts, you want to begin with that one? Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that was certainly something that I wrote about in my book and I experienced myself. Um, I don't, I don't, however, view it as experimentation so much as uh, a process. Um, and that's kind of how I, I frame my experiences, but it's a process that has been ongoing for all of human history. Uh, um, no, no, uh, Bill Burns, anything you would uh, want to add there? Sure. Um, if you look at various cases like uh, Betty and Barney Hill back from 1961, look, from, look for a lot of cases. One of the things that the entities who have taken these people do is pull egg cells, pull sperm cells. Uh, um, uh, Barney, who was an abductee, he was Betty Hill's husband, um, until the day he died talked about the aliens putting a suction cup over his genitals and pulling out all the, um, all the spear, all the serum from them. Um, there have been talks about the hybridization of the species. In fact, we investigated a case in, uh, at Del Cine, Mexico, where there was actual genetic hybridization going on between human beings and animals conducted supposedly by aliens. Actually, it was big pharma that was doing it. 
So, yes, that is true. That has been going on. Uh, thank you, Sharon. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. If you have questions, give us a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. we got Nick Pope here. We've got Matthew Roberts here. We've got uh, Ron James here and Bill Burns. This is the A-team. This is the best analysis of yesterday's hearing that you were going to hear anywhere. And uh, if you have a question about what you heard in the hearing, these are the gentlemen to ask. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Have you ever been locked in a spaceship? saw in your words a 40-foot flying tic-tac shaped object. That's correct. Or for some people that can't know what a tic-tac is, it's a giant flying propane tank. <laughs> Did this object come up on radar or interfere with your radar or, or the USS Princeton? The Princeton tracked it, the Nimitz tracked it, the E-2 tracked it. We never saw it on our radars. Our fire control radars never picked it up. The other airplane that took the video did get it on a radar. As soon as it tried to lock it, it jammed the radar, spit the lock, and he, he's rapidly switched over to the targeting pod, which he can do in the, uh, the F-18. From what you saw that day and what you've seen on video, did you see any source of propulsion from the flying object, including on any potential thermal scans from your aircraft? No, there's none. There's no uh, IR plume coming out. Uh, and Chad, who took the video, went through all the EO, which is black and white TV, and the IR modes. And there's no visible signs of propulsion. It's just sitting in space at 20,000 feet. In, in your career, have you ever seen a propulsion system that creates no thermal exhaust? No. That is uh, Congressman Nick Langworthy, Republican of New York State, questioning one of the witnesses at yesterday's hearing, Navy, Navy Commander David Fravor, on that infamous tic-tac object that they witnessed and recorded. Here to help us break down yesterday's hearing, Nick Pope, journalist, UFO expert, and former employee of the British Ministry of Defense, New York Times bestselling author Bill Burns, documentarian Ron James, and Naval Service member and author Matthew Roberts. A lot of people eager to uh, chat with you. If you want to jump on board, you can do so. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Lynn in Maryland. Hello, Lynn. Yeah, some months back, you had a, uh, a similar uh, discussion. I called in at the time and referenced a documentary film called Mirage Men that details a multi-million dollar psychological warfare operation conducted by the United States Air Force against 
the American people to basically create, generate, stimulate, and string along UFO enthusiasts, keep them, keep them busy, and basically cultivate the UFO community. And I advise all of your listeners who are interested in this subject to see that film, that documentary, Mirage Men. All right, so your question, question, Lynn, is, is this sort I, of a I have a ruse. question about Close Encounters of a Third Kind, though, which is a fictional representation of this. At the end of that, they show us the U.S. military generating a pandemic scare, an epidemic scare, to clear the area for a UFO landing. I would like members of your panel to answer yes or no. Would the Pentagon, would the Pentagon, are they capable of staging a pandemic scare in order to achieve an objective as they do in close encounters of the third kind? Bill, I know you've written a lot about uh, close encounters and viruses. Uh, You want to tackle that one first? Sure. Um, The answer to your question is a simple yes, and that's already happened. The United States military has nuclear, biological, and chemical, NBC. And when there is a UFO crash or a UFO landing, and the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that movie was based on a real landing. The, um, I was told that by the head of NASA. The, um, the, these NBC units are cleansing units. They come in, they close off an area, nobody is allowed, the area is cleaned up, it may be nuclear, it may be biological, but that's what they use to clean up UFO sites. Uh, gentlemen, I'll ask everybody else on, on that front. One of the things that I did hear a lot today is Congress is doing this to sort of distract the American public from from something. And, you know, depending on where you fall on the political spectrum, it depends what the something that they're trying to distract us is. This is sort of just something for the public, the shiny object for the public to pay attention to while uh, the real business of government goes unviewed. Anybody want to want to take a stab at uh, at addressing that concern? I'll take that. I'm skeptical. Um, I I think back in the 50s and 60s, sure, from time to time when when pilots saw things like the the U-2 spy plane or the SR-71, the Air Force and the CIA sometimes talked up the idea of flying saucers as a kind of distraction. Um, so it's, it's possible that to some extent, elements in the intelligence community sometimes um, use and abuse the UFO phenomenon for various purposes. But Congress, I mean, you've only got to look at the, the anger of some of those representatives when they say roadblocks have been put into their path to see that these Congress is not part of that. Congress is trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. Ron James, is this a distraction? Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, theories and stories about things like Project Blue Beam, where the whole ET uh, scenario is mixed into some kind of conspiracy theory. Um, there was a time when when I believed that a little bit more than I believe it today. Even today, people like Stephen Greer will say that this painting these things as a threat is a whole ploy to get more money from the government and or for the government to study this stuff and to make weapons. Um, I think that these guys are kind of on their back feet a little bit, and 
although some of that stuff is possible, and maybe there was even a time when there were plans for, for things like this, like Werner von Braun said to his secretary. But I think right now what we're seeing is kind of a forced disclosure. Films like Accidental Truth and, and the fact that sooner or later, the Webb telescope is going to see something or Elon Musk is going to land on Mars and it could be very clear that there was life there. They can't hide from this truth any longer. And they're in a real situation because they have to get out from under the liability for the deception. So we're seeing this very cleverly crafted thing. And I think that that's giving them enough of a challenge. I'm not sure that it's the prelude to a conspiratorial series of events. I don't think, I, I think they're having enough struggle just figuring out how they're going to dodge culpability and still let the public know things that are going to be plainly obvious very soon. Uh, Bill, Bill, I heard you um, trying to comment. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, there is written, and anybody listening to this can go find it, there is an official CIA history of the CIA's relationship with UFOs that's on the Internet. Um, and basically what it says is <clears throat> that, uh, and it's what one CIA agent told me years ago, is that if there were no such thing as UFOs, the CIA would have had to have invented them to cover up some of the technologies that they were trying to develop. Um, back in the 1950s, the CIA went to Hollywood producers and in order to cover up the reality of our experience with UFOs, they gave them ideas for television shows like Earth versus the Flying Saucer on the day the Earth stood still. These were all big in the 1950s and there was a reason for it. They were CIA inspired. So, yeah, there's a long and very rich history of the government involving itself with the UFO phenomena and um, creating stories about Gentlemen, it. Gentlemen, we're going to have to end it there. I'll look forward to having all four of you back on soon. Matthew Roberts, Ron James, Bill Burns, Nick Pope. I appreciate you staying up late with us and being so generous with your time. Thank you. Uh, Thanks a lot. If you want to comment on any portion of what you just heard, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. A lot of other stuff to get to next hour as well. And uh, we are just getting started here. Two action-packed hours to go. We're not going anywhere. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. The Other Side of Midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. This is an issue that I have been reluctant to talk about because I don't like to comment on people's personal lives 
even if they happen to be public figures. I especially don't like to comment on people's families and people's familial lives because you don't know what what's going on within someone's family. You don't. And I don't like to sit there and judge and act like I do know what's going on. And I think families, especially when children are involved, it's tough enough being a parent or a grandparent. I try to not comment on this at all. However, we're now at the point where the situation involving Joe Biden's seventh grandchild cannot be ignored because it is now a significant political issue. Much more so than any of this stuff with Hunter Biden and uh, taking a plea, not taking a plea, doing all that stuff, uh, doing cocaine, uh, having guns, not paying taxes, selling artwork for over a million dollars. Apparently, no one cares about that. The, The people that do care about it, I should say, already were not going to vote for Joe Biden. And we have now some polling data to indicate that this is the case. Last week. When the Club for Growth, the Club for Growth, if you're not familiar with them, it's a very conservative group. It's a basically it's um, a conservative economic group. They're anti-Biden, but they're also very anti-Trump because they don't like Trump on trade. They don't like Trump on Social Security. They probably don't like him on immigration. They're more kind of your standard, typical Republican conservative group, not pre-Trump conservative. So last week. When the Club for Growth paid for new polling of the 2024 electorate, it asked two questions for the very first time. Were voters worried that illegal drugs are appearing in the White House? And did they believe that the president should acknowledge Hunter Biden's daughter as his grandchild? And the results were overwhelming. Yes. And yes, 63% of voters were unhappy with that the Secret Service couldn't figure out who left cocaine at the White House this month. Republicans have sort of cast suspicions on Hunter. And 69%, 69% of voters wanted the president to admit that he had seven grandchildren, not six. Now, you might say, all right, well, the Club for Growth is a conservative group. They can't stand Biden. They're going to contour the questions of this poll in a manner that it's going to look bad for Biden. No, no, none of the conservative issues tested for the Club for Growth by this polling firm that they hired, WPA Intelligence, which is a reputable polling firm. None of the conservative issues tested by them including supporting freedom schools, opposing a government-backed digital currency. No, None of the issues had numbers like this. None of them. Even the president of the Club for Growth, David McIntosh, said on Monday to Semaphore, I was a little surprised. He shared the polling with reporters, and it's too early to say whether Republicans could win votes by pressing the White House on Hunter Biden, but if it looks like Hunter Biden received money to influence his dad... Republicans are going to make that a big issue. And McIntosh, the head of the Club for Growth, believes that voters are going to care about that. Now, Hunter Biden's got many problems. Child paternity, tax fraud investigation, uh, sex tapes that are being put out on posters and congressional hearings. And he has not really gotten many Democrats too concerned about the president. And most of the polling has justified that attitude. 
because the polling has found that very few voters who might support Joe Biden for a second term are following the Hunter Biden stories at all. And even fewer factor it in to their 2024 vote. Chris Jackson, a senior vice president at Ipsos, said Democrats and independents just don't really hold Joe Biden responsible for Hunter. And he's one of the few public pollsters, Chris Jackson is, that's been asking voters about the president's son. We'll see, right? There's over a year to go before the election, but so far they aren't changing. But coverage of Hunter Biden has also changed in recent weeks. A wide range of stories about the president's son are now getting more traction outside of conservative media. And as Republicans step up their criticism of the Biden family, pollsters are watching to see if public attitudes change on this one. So, I mean, obviously, if if there's proof that the president himself took bribes, then that might cause some voters to have a different view. But the issue of his seventh grandchild is a very different one. The view that, um, you know, the Hunter Biden story is not moving many voters. The issue of his seventh grandchild apparently is. There was a story in USA Today um, a couple of days ago, USA Today being the paper, the day of the week being a few days ago. Headline, President Biden won't acknowledge his youngest granddaughter. It turns off even some supporters. And it goes through. First of all, it's a lengthy story. Uh, I'll link to it if you want to read it at Facebook.com slash Morano fan, uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Uh, USA Today, not exactly con- considered a conservative media publication. And it goes through all these voters who like Biden and voted for Vi- Biden, but they can't stand the fact that he will not acknowledge his seventh grandchild. Uh, Beth Bins, a grandmother of seven and a retired receptionist from Philadelphia who votes Republican, she said, if that's the case, um, you know, she was talking about, um, you know, Hunter meeting this woman during the height of his drug addiction. If that's the case, that's fine. But just admit that you have a seventh grandchild. You can't leave that child out in the cold. I think it's a disgrace. And he calls himself a Christian, a Catholic, Louis Snipe. Tells USA Today he's a Lyft driver who spent years repairing pool tables. He admires President Joe Biden very much, voted for him. But he has a very different opinion of Grandpa Joe Biden. He credits Biden. He likes Biden on policy. He credits Biden for rebuilding the economy and restoring dignity to the White House. But Snipe has trouble squaring his support with one of Biden's family's decisions. The refusal to acknowledge the existence of his four-year-old granddaughter in Arkansas. All of the other grandchildren, all of the six others, had stockings at the White House on Christmas time. The forward to the the uh, dedication page to Jill Biden's children book. That's the first lady. Her children's book was dedicated to her six grandchildren. They act like this child doesn't exist, and Biden's image as a family man who values decency and compassion, that is central to his political identity. And he's fostered this over five decades in public office. 
Yet, according to this USA Today article, even among Democratic supporters in Philadelphia, a city that Biden carried with more than 80 percent of the vote last time around and where he kicked off his campaign uh, in 2020, this question is not sitting well with voters, particularly among fellow grandparents who can put themselves in the president's shoes. Other Biden backers said they differ with him on uh, how he handles this subject. Uh, Aaron Miller, a grandfather of two, who uh, is a big Biden supporter. That's one area where I think I have a disagreement. I think he should acknowledge that. That's another granddaughter. But I'm not sure how important that is to national policy. USA Today is not the only publication looking into this. Maureen, uh, Maureen Dowd from the New York Times, traditionally a very reliable liberal columnist, a couple of weeks ago, she had a, a, a column headlined, It's Seven Grandkids, Mr. President. And she gets into how likable Biden is. She talks about how her Republican sister even finds that Biden's gregarious Irish charm gets to her because she met him at a holiday party 10 years ago. She liked him. But then Maureen Dowd writes, I was surprised recently when I discovered my sister writing a letter to President Biden, a plea that she had started in the middle of the night after mulling over the matter for quite a while. And this letter is all about how he should acknowledge this seventh grandchild, Navy, little Navy. They wouldn't allow her to use the Biden name. And Hunter's lawyers did whatever he could to support a slash child support payments. And Maureen Dowd makes a pretty compelling case in this column. And again, she is a Biden supporter as well. She makes a pretty compelling case in this column that Biden should acknowledge his seventh child, grandchild. So I have a few questions for you on this that I'd love for you to weigh in on at 800-848-9222. One, you're seeing it be reflected in polling. And I just cited three different media organizations, Semaphore, USA Today, and The New York Times. You're seeing it reflected in polling that 69% of voters care about this. The independents and the Democrats, they don't care about any of this Hunter Biden stuff. They care about Little Navy and the fact that Biden won't acknowledge her. Question one, does that hurt him in the upcoming election? 800-848-9222. Question two, what do you make of the fact that this is not just the Daily Caller and the New York Post focusing on this story? What do you make of the fact that mainstream media outlets, Semaphore, USA Today, New York Times, even liberal-leaning media outlets, are now starting to cover this story? Do you think that's strategic or is that just a reflection of what their readership wants to hear? Three, what would you do in this situation? Obviously, look, I can't imagine being in a situation where I had a son that wouldn't acknowledge his own child. But if you're if you're in that position and if you have a child that won't acknowledge his own child and has no relationship with her or the mother. Do you still treat that child as a grandchild? I think my answer would be yes. But I'm curious if you've ever been in a similar position and 
what you make of this. 800-848-9222. Curious if you think it affects the election. Curious about what you think of the increasing coverage on this from non-conservative media outlets. And I'm curious about what you would do, putting aside all the political stuff, what you would do if you were in President Biden's shoes. 800-848-9222. I think it's really sad. I mean, this four-year-old girl has nothing to do with politics. She has nothing to do with Hunter. She has nothing to do with the president or his policies. So I hate to, this is why I avoided covering the story for so long and I avoided commenting on it because I hate to see an innocent little girl be treated as a political football, but people care about this. People care about this and it has not really sat well with me that he who acts like this big family man won't even acknowledge that he has seven grandchildren. Curious how you feel about it. 800-848-9222. Johnny is uh, listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Johnny. Yes. Forget all the politics aside. This is an issue of basic human decency. That little girl had no thing in her conception that is her grandfather for him to not acknowledge her shows that he is a hypocrite in everything he believes in your response well i mean i largely uh, agree with you i mean i can't speak to the I don't know about the hypocrisy aspect of it, but it certainly doesn't speak well of his character in my judgment. Right. I mean, I've known many people that have been through, you know what I'm saying, but they acknowledge and they do the child support. That man, Hunter Biden, has a lot of money. He can support that child. I do not care. I'll, I'll put it this way. When my when I was younger, sir, and girls started calling the house, my father took me on the side. He said, you bake a loaf, you're responsible for it. Well, I think that, yeah, I, thank you, uh, Johnny. I appreciate that. And that's certainly good advice. I am, um, you know, again, I'm, Hesitant to make this a political issue, but the voters are making this a political issue and voters are saying they don't like this. So I'm curious if you think this is going to affect him negatively in the upcoming election. Uh, by the way, just a reminder, I am off next week. I'm off to Cape May, New Jersey. Very pleased to be heard right now in Cape May, New Jersey, on a wonderful talk station, WOND Talk 1400 in Atlantic City, which uh, is our South Jersey affiliate, great listenership, not only in Atlantic City, but in Cape May. And uh, we're going to talk with Dave Damiani in a, a, little, a few minutes about Tony Bennett and about music in general and about uh, kind of where he comes down on the Tony Bennett side of things in terms of his musical legacy. But I, one of the things that I like about Cape May, New Jersey, is all the parkland, there's great state parks and all sorts of historical sightings. I don't know that there's any national parks in Cape May, New Jersey. In fact, I'm relatively certain there's not. But I came across this article yesterday 
that I just had to share, which is not, which is apropos of nothing, relevant to nothing. It is an article in mentalfloss.com, which is a fun website that's got all sorts of amazing facts and big questions. And there, they found 10 strange and surprisingly specific national park rules. I'm going to share a few of these with you. At Death Valley National Park, there is no giving birth in the Saline Valley Hot Springs. Now, how did they come to come up with that kind of a rule? And what are you supposed to do if you're going into labor? Oh, well, we're in Death Valley. We, we got to hold it in. I mean, that's the most ridiculous rule I've ever heard. Grand Canyon National Park, which the gentleman who played the $1,000 Minute uh, yesterday thought was in Colorado. No pets on your rafting trip. I can understand that one because especially these days, everyone's trying to bring these little dogs with them. They might claw up the raft and might cause the raft to deflate. In Shenandoah National Park, which is a beautiful waterfall-filled getaway, they have an interesting rule. (laughs) This is not a joke. No burying your poop less than three inches deep. That's a rule. At Shenandoah National Park. So if you're heading there, if you're off next week and you're making a trip over to Shenandoah National Park, dig deeply. Dig deeply. At all national parks, and I think this is a good rule as well. At all national parks, you are not allowed to tease animals while they breed. No teasing of the animals. I do wonder how they decided to make that a rule. At all Washington, D.C. national parks. No intimidating golfers or tennis players. I guess you're free to intimidate pickleballers or frisbee players or touch football players, whatever. At Joshua Tree National Park, no balloons without a permit. How do you get a permit for balloons at Joshua Tree National Park? And does that mean you can have balloons without a permit at any other national park? In all national parks, and I don't know how much they enforce this rule. I'm curious if anyone's experienced this. No swearing or making obscene gestures. Also at all national parks, no building cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S. Is that how you pronounce it? Cairns or disturbing existing ones. Cairns are vertically stacked piles of rocks that you've probably seen before on a hike. And apparently park officials place them there to mark trails. So you can't build one because then it'll screw people up on what trails they're on and you can't disturb existing ones. All national parks, no moving or disturbing dead fish. And also, no rolling a rock down a hill. So now you know the rules for attending a national park. The surprisingly specific rules of attending a national park. All right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Janet is in Bergen County, New Jersey. Hello, Janet. Good, good morning. Morning. Question. If that was my grandfather, in other words, who would want to have him as a grandfather? You could say that is because this is the truth, because the DNA proves it. But I wouldn't want my kid to be near that man. He's a liar. He's He's a cheat. I mean, since in college, they have proof everything that he's done. But as a four-year-old, you want your kid with that man now who is a, a murderer in uh, Long Island. 
Well, I mean, I think Rex Hewerman. that he is, but I wouldn't want my child. Listen, she's getting a fortune of money so far. It was originally $20,000 a month, and now I think they knocked it down to 5000 5, a month. Um, but take the money and say it is, but you don't want him to be, you don't want your daughter to be with that family. Well, fair enough, Janet. They're evil. Yeah, th- thank you. You know, one... I think you're way out of line uh, comparing the president of the United States to a serial killer that uh, that murdered multiple people. I, I think it's it's not even it's not even it's not the same league. It's not even the same sport. It's it's not even apples and oranges. It's two very different. It's the animal kingdom and the vegetable kingdom. But your let's say your broader point about some of the things that Biden has done going all the way way, way back to college plagiarism and so forth. Um, as a four-year-old, you don't know that. I mean, I don't know what my grandparents were up to um, when they were in – well, my grandparents never went to college, but when they were college age. And when I was four years old, I, I wouldn't have cared. You, you just want to spend time with your, your grandfather or your grandmother. So I, um, I just think it, it speaks poorly of him that he doesn't want anything to do with her. And apparently the voters agree. According to this poll from the um, Club for for Growth, the one thing that I do wonder, though, is is this sort of strategic on the part of the mainstream press in that we have started to see the mainstream press at the White House ask more questions about things like Hunter Biden and other things. Is this sort of the center left press becoming more disillusioned with President Biden and hoping that he can be damaged enough that another candidate can come in. I'm not so sure that anybody is is putting this out there with that Machiavellian an attempt, but um, I'm sure other people may think that was the the case. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. I think it's a reflection of people want to know about what's going on here, and that's why these media publications are spending all this time on this, because that's the one thing – Conservative media, liberal media all have in common. They're all into it for clicks. They all want the clicks. They all want the viewers. They all want the they all want, you know, eyeballs, basically. And they want folks to pay attention to the story. And folks are interested in this story for better or for worse. And I'm curious if there's going to be any sort of a a political ramification to this by the way we're on twitter as well at frank morano that's frank m-o-r-a-n-o and you can also find us on facebook at facebook.com slash morano fan going to talk with one of the better modern day crooners dave damiani he is always one of these guys i've known him for quite some time he sings with my buddy joe piscopo and i've seen him perform many times a great performer and he's one of these guys that you always view as sort of eternally youthful Apparently, he is now turning 50 years old, and he is turning 50 years old in the kind of style that I'd like to turn 50 as part of a burlesque show. So we're going to ask him about that. We'll ask him about Tony Bennett and uh, a whole lot of other things uh, throughout the course of our discussion in a moment. Uh, Again, if you want to join the Facebook group, you can do so by searching Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. um, A little bit later, I want to get into a story that uh, you probably have not heard much about, but I think... um, 
you're going to be really interested in. And I pride myself on our ability to find these stories that uh, the rest of the world has missed or may not care about, but that I bring to your attention. And there, you know, I got a question a few weeks ago. Has anybody ever asked you to pay for an interview? Like when you invite a guest on the show, has anybody ever um, asked you to pay for them? And I mentioned that there were only two people that had asked me to pay to have them on the show. Well, now, as of yesterday, there is now a third person that I can add to that list. You're not going to believe who it is. I'll tell you in just a bit. Dave Damiani joins me on the other side of Midnight Straight Ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Dave Damiani and the No Vacancy Orchestra. Dave Damiani, in addition to being a, a close friend, is a terrific singer, a terrific songwriter, a terrific producer and performer. And, by the way, he is an occasional um, fill-in host on our Atlantic City affiliate, WOND. And uh, he has performed with some of the all-time greats in the music business from many different eras. He's performed with Bobby Rydell. He's performed with people like Landau, Eugene Landau Murphy Jr. He's performed with people like my friend Joe Piscopo. Uh, he's performed with uh, Haley Reinhardt. He is a sight to behold, and I am thrilled that he's agreed to uh, get up early with us this morning. Hello, Dave. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you, my friend? I am doing great, uh, Dave. Obviously, uh, a whole lot of news uh, in the last uh, few days about the passing of Tony Bennett, who we lost this week at the age of, of 96. Now, in your lengthy list of stars from different eras that you've performed with, I don't believe that you've ever performed with Tony Bennett, have you? I wish I could say that I had the opportunity to perform with Tony Bennett, but I, I didn't. I never actually ever met him. and. And, but I did go to see him a couple times at the Hollywood Bowl, and I was a huge fan, and I, it was a huge influence on me. I mean, one of the greats, you know. I mean, he's the last; he was the last one standing. So it's kind of, kind of sad, actually, because there's not just because of the loss of Tony Bennett, a great artist, but also because there's just no one that there's no one left now that 
we can really look up to. I, I mean, I love Harry Connick Jr. I think he's the, I think he's the guy, the only one that we could really look up to as like a leader. Yeah, and again, it's not to take anything away from uh, people like uh, Frankie Valley, who were uh, you know still going strong at whatever age he is, eighty five, or um, you know Steve Lawrence, who is I don't think able to perform uh, because he's got Alzheimer's. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're right; it certainly is the end of an era with Tony Bennett's passing. What do you think his musical legacy is, Dave? When you think of Tony Bennett, when you th- when you, when Tony Bennett's name is mentioned a decade from now, twenty years from now, what do you think people are going to think of? I think he was the one that actually sang and, and performed the best as he got older. He actually he actually aged like wine as he got older. Some of his some of his records that after he had, he had kind of fell out of popularity. And then they brought him back with, uh, you know, the MTV Unplugged. I don't know if you remember that back in like the 90s. Sure. They brought that back and like it was kind of a phenomenon because it really wasn't much going on at the time. This is like prior to Michael Buble, prior to the, you know, the bringing back of all that stuff. And then he did the Stepping Out album and he did some great, great stuff. And then as he got older, he just aged like like fine wine. I mean, he really did. he never missed a beat, and I and I seen him perform live a few times, and when I did, it was like it, you, you could hear a pin drop. He would turn the microphone off and he would sing a cappella to the room. I saw him at Disney Hall, and it was like he filled the whole space up. I, I've never seen anyone like that before. That people were. I mean, I saw Sinatra one time towards the very end of his career, but Tony Bennett, well into his nineties, was singing like he was in his. 50s and 60s, and he just was incredible. You know, that's such a a great point, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dave Damiani. If uh, you're not familiar with him, he's responsible for some terrific music. You can check out his website at davedamiani.com, D-A-M-I-A-N-I.com. He's got a big performance coming up this weekend, which we're going to tell you about uh, in uh, just a little, bu- a little bit. In your view, though, Dave, you know, you mentioned Sinatra. There's so many great crooners throughout the 20th century and even the 21st. Uh, you got people like uh, Vic Damone, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, even in more recent years, people like um, Michael Buble. What do you think it is that made Tony Bennett's music different than those guys? Because he really did seem to have a distinctly different style from all of the other crooners of the, the 60s, 70s and 80s. You know, like when you go see a movie and you see like Jack Nicholson and he and he and he plays he plays a character, but basically it's Jack Nicholson playing himself <laughs> or like or like Robert De Niro. Sometimes you see him in a character and, and, and it's like I, we watched we had it on the other night. We were watching Dirty Grandpa and it's so funny, but it's basically Robert De Niro playing this cat. It's, him, it's, it's himself in the character. Tony Bennett came up with a couple of really cool things. He played himself in every song and who he was was the type of person that I, you know, you just, you want to meet the guy, you want to talk to him, you want to know what he's all about because he's genuine, he's authentic. And I don't know many, I mean, like Vic Timone was an amazing singer. Frankie Valley's an amazing singer. I mean, I mean, you can't, but, but the genres are a little different. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. But when you talk about Tony Bennett, this guy was an authentic person, authentic soul. And uh, it came through, the lyric came through, and you understood the story he was telling. Not always do I feel that way when I'm listening to every every crooner. There's some people that sound great, that have a great voice, and you, you can't, undeniably, wow, what a pretty tone. Undeniably, wow, what an incredible vibrato. But something about Tony Bennett's personality, he just seemed like the type of person that, you, you know, like your cool uncle or your cool grandpa mm. or your cool 
you know, and, and, and that's what it was to me always. Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great way of uh, describing uh, describing him and the kind of the vibe that he gave off. Do you have a favorite uh, Tony Bennett song, either to listen to or to sing? I like. I always liked. I want to be around. I always like. I want to be around to pick up the pieces when somebody breaks your heart. Somebody twice as smart as I. Uh, it was a great, great song. It's a great, great story about. Did you ever hear the story about how that song was? Written? No, tell me. It was a. This woman had a breakup, and she sent. Um, she was a huge fan of Johnny Mercer and she sent the lyric to Johnny Mercer. She was working in a, a drugstore. She was a pharmacist and he got, he read it and he, he wrote the music to it and he touched up a couple of things. And that song became a song because she sent the song to Johnny Mercer, thought he would like it. He made it and got Tony Bennett to record it. That's incredible. I had no idea about any of that. That's remarkable. You, you know, number one song that is uh, crazy on the one hand, but not at all surprising on the other hand. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the MTV unplugged renaissance of Tony Bennett's career because it's amazing to think about. But that was almost 30 years ago. I mean, that. Even if the song, if he was new at the time, he would be a throwback these days. And yet his music, even his first number one hit, it was still getting played on the radio up until recently. His music has withstood the test of time. We've seen a lot of other musical artists. They, uh, their, their, their hits don't necessarily withstand the test of time. What do you think it is about Tony Bennett's style of music that uh, decades after these songs were recorded, People still enjoy them just as much. Well, the, first off, the songs, the song choices are the best. I mean, back then, you know, there were no one-hit wonders because you had songwriters, and then you had orchestra band members, and then you had singers. And he just sang because he was a great singer. You know, the Beatles came along, and the studios decided to say, well, guess what? We're going to have all these bands write songs. Well, not everybody was as good as the Beatles. That's why you had a bunch of one-hit wonders. They saved a bunch of money. But back in the day, the craft of songwriting, and, and actually Tony Bennett as a singer knew what songs to pick. I mean, I love the Count Basie record. I mean, I love, you know, look, the opening of Goodfellas. I mean, it, Rags mm. to Riches. I had never heard that song until I saw that movie. That was the early 90s. You know, I mean, I was, a, I was a, you know, pretty young back then. So I heard the song. These, that turned me on to this music. And it transcended decades and it transcended age. And still today, people listen to it. I went Monday night. I took my daughter to go see Billy Joel at the Madison Square Garden show. And he, he you know, he said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to dedicate the song. To Tony Bennett, and dude, I mean, I'm getting choked up talking to you about it. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. He did New York State of Mind, and he and he uh, he kind of sounded like him a little bit. He tried, he like, channeled Tony Bennett a little bit. He took a couple of those phrases where he did that Tony Bennett, that little the little thing that he does, you know, where he kind of giggles, and it, it was just like a really cute thing. And then at the end, he ended it with "I left my heart in San Francisco." Um, just it's part of the ending and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Uh, that's Either. outstanding. That is outstanding. Uh, talking with Dave Damiani, you could check out his website, davedamiani.com. Hey, uh, Dave, uh, you have aged since I've known you, but I guess everybody has. You are still a relatively young guy. A lot of people may be surprised that you, you and your 17 piece band, the No Vac Vacancy Orchestra, you really specialize in this type of music, uh, which some people may not necessarily think of being of your generation. How did you get into performing this type of music and these sort of songs? Well, I, I always loved 
you know, the, the, the great American songbook. And my grandfather used to play the songs. I used to work with him in the summers down in you know, Jersey Shore, and we used to drive around. He used to play Frank Sinatra. But not until I moved out to Los Angeles. I got a job as a singing waiter at Michelli's Italian Restaurant, and all of the waiters had to sing a song. So I had loved Beyond the Sea, which was another song from the Goodfellas soundtrack um, that I loved. When they're in the jail cell, they're cutting up, and they're cooking the Sure, garlic. Bobby Darren. Yeah, Bobby Darren, and and I I think I learned a lot of these songs from those movies, um, but um, I had to learn how to sing to work at this restaurant because I really loved it, and I saw that it was kind of timeless. And then um, I went back to school, and I just started studying this music, and I just I just really felt like wow, this music just really spoke to me. I I, I really still don't understand what's going on in music today. I, I just don't. Yeah. I, I feel like when I when I listen to some of the you know, the pop music, popular music. Hey, look, there's some great songs out there that have been written in the last 20 years. Don't get me wrong. There's a song like that. I'm going to give just throw a couple out there. There's a song by John Mayer called Daughters. That's just, if you have a daughter, it's an incredible song. If you don't, it's an incredible song. Or even like the Justin Bieber song that he wrote, um, Love Yourself. I mean, you know, there's some great songs that are being written out there. But for the most part, I really don't understand what's going on in the, in the music industry. Um, I I love the old standards. I love the old great American song, but you can't beat George Gershwin and Jimmy McHugh and Jerome Kern and, you know, and, uh, the, you know, Irving Berlin. And there's something special about the way that they wrote these lyrics and the way that they tied them together. And, and it's just that people aren't putting that much thought into it anymore. Yeah. Uh, well, I, well, well said. Uh, I, uh, I totally agree with you on that. Hey, it's hard to believe because you're one of these guys, maybe it's your, your boyish charm or your your good looks, whatever the case may be, you are seen as just sort of eternally youthful. Are you really turning 50 years old? Dude, it's so ridiculous. I can't even believe it. Nobody I mean, can. My, my daughter said, my daughter said, Dad, we're, she's, I'm telling everybody you're turning 20. Like she's laughing at it. I, I mean, I don't, it doesn't feel like I'm turning 50. It's bizarre. I just don't. I don't feel 50. I don't want to be 50, but you know what? I'm going to embrace it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Frank? Yeah, good for we're, you. We're all, we're all going to get there. We all got to enjoy it. And, uh, and actually, I'm enjoying this part of my life, spending time with my daughter, who's out here with me. We're down the Jersey Shore. We're having a great time together. We're traveling up and back and forth to New York. And, and, and she's getting ready to go to college. And I'm really enjoying being a parent. And, uh, you know, I have some great friends like you and some great people in my life that, you know, it's time to maybe – you know, start to appreciate that a little bit more and, and, uh, and spend some more time with people. And um, you are now eligible for AARP, which I just I can't believe. It's <laughs> remarkable. And I, from what I'm told, there's some great discounts. You should sign up. But in order to commemorate this august occasion, this Sunday night, you are throwing this blowout, big, half-century birthday bash I'm actually going to try and be there, and I'm going to try and come with a couple of friends uh, because I'm going to be not far from you in uh, in Cape May. What are you going to be doing, and uh, what's the story here? Where is it going to be? Well, it's going to be at the Anchor Rock Club in New York City. It's right off the boardwalk. Uh, not New York City, Atlantic City. In Atlantic City, right off the boardwalk off New York Avenue by the Irish Pub. There's a little ramp there. It used to be the old Deja Vu nightclub. Um, and I think it was called Chez Paris, too, years ago. But it's it's an incredible, really cool, sexy little club. I have uh, some guest singers popping in. You know, you, you, some of the people that you that, that we mentioned earlier, we'll never, we don't know, going to know exactly until the day of who's coming. But uh, some some of the celebrity friends that I are, um, I play with 
are talking about coming by and and then i have a, a couple of burlesque dancers that are we've choreographed a couple mm. numbers to um and we're gonna make it a fun party man we're gonna have a great time and uh i'm gonna get a little photo booth people are gonna take some photos and and uh we're gonna have and we're gonna party way into the night so the family will be there the friends will be there atlantic city mayor don former mayor don guardian i expect him to be there and do a little introduction ac mike of course so um it's going to be a really, really nice uh, night. I'm, I'm excited about well, it. Well, that is exciting. And uh, I would uh, I would try and give you a hard time about getting a, a speaking part if our, our buddy AC Mike, who's also heard every day on uh, no, Talk 1400 WOND. But uh, by that time of the evening, there's absolutely no scenario in which I'm going to be sober. So I will enjoy letting other people speak. For, I, I, would, for I, would love, I would love to have I would love to have a, uh, a toasted. A toasted toast from uh, Frank Morano. Please, my uh, good pal. I, I have a that. I have a reputation to maintain. So that's Dave Damiani and the No Vacancy or- Orchestra, the burlesque birthday party at the Anchor Rock Club this Sunday, July thirtieth, uh, seven p.m. The doors open. I'm going to be there. It'll be a lot of fun, and uh, who knows, you may see a buzzed Frank Morano take the stage. Hopefully not. Hey, if people want to go to that, Dave, how do they how do they attend? How do they get tickets, or do they need tickets? Um, no, uh, well, they can just come to the door. Um, you don't need to get tickets, but if you wanted to get, if you wanted to ensure that you know you definitely wanted to get a ticket or ha- put it, it's a standing room place, but there's seats upstairs. If you wanted to ensure that, you go to Anchor Rock Club, AnchorRockClub.com or DaveDamiani.com, and you'll see it right on there. So it's it's uh, it'll be it'll be a real real easy thing for you to do. And do, and then, do we, uh, do we yeah, have to pay to go, no Dave? Frank. What's the story? Can we just go, or, or what's the deal? You can just go. Just, just right. come. Just come. All right. Well, hey, that's fine. I, I wanted to ask you something. Who's the who's the who's the person that wanted to get paid for the interview? Or do uh, I have to wait for that? Tune, tune in. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm gonna I am gonna tell people that I am gonna blow people's minds with this revelation in just a minute. I will I will tell people that uh, that it was not you though. You did not ask. Hey, um, w- w- tell me about these burlesque dancers. I, I've not been to a burlesque birthday party before. Well, so like I started doing this thing back in Los Angeles about. About right around uh, Sinatra's birthday, we opened up the old Cinegrill at the Roosevelt Hotel, and they wanted to do something like a sexy jazz night. So what we did was we started to add a couple dancers to come out and Corey. It's it's classy. It's not like it's not like you know it's not a strip thing, but it's it's a very classy thing. And they we started to add some dance elements to a couple of the arrangements because we've been doing these songs and some of these arrangements for a while. And I was like, you know, I really want to try and attract a younger crowd. So I hired some of these girls that, from the Cats Meow Dancers. They're like, you know, ama- they work with uh, they work with Kid Rock, they work with Beyonce, but they really love the art of jazz dancing and they love the art of you know some tap dancing. And they're like, can we do some stuff for your show? And I was like, you know what? And it kind of took off. We kind of sold them out, and people love the concept. You know, it breaks it up a little bit. I mean, look, I-, I love to go to a jazz club and watch some of the great jazz performers and sit there and watch and see how great people are on their on their instrument and stuff but i also like to be entertained and i feel like sometimes that that gets lost in this genre um because not that you need beautiful women to be entertained but i mean it well, does it doesn't help, hurt doesn't it yes it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. hurt that's for sure all right uh now dave uh, is, is, this is not going to be one of these parties that's super loud right if i go with a couple of friends i'm still going to be able to have a conversation you're still going to be able to have a conversation. You're going to be able to enjoy the music because everything's acoustic. We're not using any tracks. Oh. We have, you know, upright bass, piano, guitar, drums. 
And then we have three saxophones, two trumpets and a trombone. We're doing, we're going to play songs and we're going to play some songs that, you know, from Frankie Valley, who's one of my favorite artists. And we're going to do a song from Tony Orlando that I just got in the ring. Oh, great. Uh, great guy. And we're going to add in some stuff. We're going to, he's a great, what a great guy. What an incredible guy he is. Uh, that, that is for sure. All right. So come see uh, Dave Damiani and a host of, uh, of celebrities and uh, a lot of great talents and probably most important, the burlesque dancers at the Anchor rock club uh 7 p.m this sunday night in atlantic city i uh, i'm looking forward to seeing you dave and uh, and toasting the fact that no one has uh, no one has killed you in a half a century i know right can you believe that no you you beat the odds that's for sure that's for sure all right dave happy birthday I love you, Frank. Thanks again, man. You, you and, too. Uh, have a great night. Thank you. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Hopefully I'll see some of you there. It'll be a lot of fun. The uh, We've already we've already planned in an Atlantic City excursion into our Cape May trip, so it'll probably be on Sunday, and I'll take a trip over to the Anchor. All right. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me, my lover stands on golden sands and watches the ships. That go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms I'd go sailing. It's far. Beyond the Sea by the great Bobby Darren. I'll tell you, there's also a terrific picture about Bobby Darren. It's called Beyond the Sea. It uh, it stars Kevin Spacey, and he sings as Bobby Darren in the picture. And I have to tell you, and maybe it's okay to say this now that Kevin Spacey's been acquitted of all those uh, charges in in England, which maybe we'll talk about, but the film is phenomenal. I love it. I love it. Some people take issues with some of the things that aren't historically accurate about it, but it's a movie. It's not, you know, not a textbook. It's a movie. All right. Um, so, as I mentioned, there had been two guests that had previously asked to be paid for the privilege of an interview, uh, for my interviewing them. And needless to say, I did not pay either of them, and they didn't come on the show. It's fine. So, let me give you a little context. We have a guest booker that works at our radio network. I, I only met her once. She seems like a wonderful woman. She's relatively new. She started about three and a half months ago. And, you know, she's, got a, she's responsible for booking a lot of shows, so I'm not criticizing her at all. But in the three and a half months that she has been our guest booker, this is not an exaggeration. She has not booked a single guest on this show. Not one. Not one in three and a half months. Fine. I don't mind. I book everybody myself. Fine. So 
I think she senses that I'm a little skeptical at how hard she's trying to actually book guests. So now she's sending me the communications that she has with potential guests and their responses to these inquiries, which I'm glad because otherwise I would have had no idea. If she just crossed this off the list that I gave her of people to go after, then I would have had no idea. Well, I, um, one of the people on my list was a, a an Olympic athlete and somebody that has a fascinating life story. That person is former heavyweight champion of the world in the world of pro wrestling, Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle. This is the response that they wrote back to our guest booker when we asked about having him on. Thank you for your interest in Kurt. I'm his manager and can help set this up, but Kurt does charge a fee for any interviews. His rate? What do you think his rate is? Any idea, Mr. Uh, Matt Blaze? Oh, for Kurt Angle, I'm going to say 5000 No, no, no. Okay, even he's not that crazy. Kurt does charge a fee for any interviews. His rate is $2,000 for 45 minutes. If this is of interest, let me know and we can discuss a date and time. So what do you say? Should we set up a GoFundMe to get Kurt Angle on the program? Let me know what you think. Until then, keep asking questions. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, there was there was a whole bunch of big court cases decided yesterday, all of them very different from one another, all of them interesting. You know, it was speculated that yesterday was going to be the day that President Trump was going to be indicted. Can you imagine if that indictment came down yesterday? They say it may come down today or tomorrow, but... Can you imagine if that indictment came down yesterday with everything that was happening with the Hunter Biden plea and the three cases that I'm about to bring to your attention? People would have been going crazy claiming it was some sort of a distraction or a conspiracy. Well, 
Let me begin with a case involving one of America's greatest living actors. This is somebody that can do dramatic roles, that can do comedic roles. This man can play an alien. He can play uh, Jack Abramoff. He can play Richard Nixon. He's played all those parts. He could play the president or he can play uh, a hostage negotiator. Or, as he did in the film American Beauty, he can play a jilted husband who discovers that his wife, played by Annette Bening, is cheating on him. Mr. Smiley's. Would you like to try our new beef and cheese pot pie on a stick? Just $1.99 for a limited time only? We were just at a seminar. Uh, buddy, this is my... Her husband. We've met before, but something tells me you're going to remember me this time. Whoa. You are so busted. You know, this really doesn't concern you. Well, actually, Janine is senior drafting manager, so you kind of are on her turf. <sighs> so, this makes sense. Lester. Honey, it's okay. I want you to be happy. Would you like smiley sauce with that? Lester, just stop it. No, no. You don't get to tell me what to do ever again. There has never been an actor that enunciates the way Kevin Spacey does. In terms of actors that can actually become the part that they're playing, other than maybe Gary Oldman or Tom Hanks, I don't know that there's anybody that comes close to Kevin Spacey. You see Clint Eastwood in a movie, great actor, wonderful actor, one of my favorites, but he's Clint Eastwood in every movie. Same thing with uh, Gary Cooper or John Wayne or Harrison Ford. Kevin Spacey becomes the role that he's playing. Now, just because he's a good actor and he was one of my favorites, I love the the series House of Cards. I, I love really everything that I've ever seen him in. Just because he's a good actor doesn't mean he's not a creep. Uh, Bill Cosby, by all accounts, based on what we know now, is probably a creep in spite of the fact that he's a gifted comedic actor and a um, a pretty good stand-up comic as well. O.J. Simpson, fine actor, nowhere near as good as someone like Kevin Spacey. I believe he's probably a murderer, but even if he's not a murderer, he's still a total degenerate creep. But, So I looked at all these charges that Kevin Spacey was going into with an open mind. Remember, this was the height of the Me Too era. And I was saying, all right, maybe he's just a creep, just like all these other guys. Well, yesterday, a jury in London acquitted Kevin Spacey on charges of sexual assault. This latest court victory after a series of men have accused him of misconduct during Spacey's trial, which took four weeks. He had argued that he was a big flirt, but did not assault anyone. Accusations in the trial included three men who said Spacey aggressively grabbed their crotches, and another who said he woke up to the actor performing oral sex on him after going back to Spacey's London apartment for beer. You know what? Just let me also interject here. If you go back, to someone's apartment alone and you know 
they're of the same sexual persuasion that you are. If you're a heterosexual male and you're going to a heterosexual female's apartment at night and you know there's going to be alcohol involved, what are you expecting to happen? Same thing if you're gay. I think it was pretty much an open secret that anybody Kevin Spacey worked with knew that he was gay. If you're a gay man and you're going back to his apartment alone for a beer, what do you think you're going to do? Play checkers? I, I just, I don't understand this. How people go in and then say, oh, I had no idea what was going on. Now, I'm not trying to victim shame here because I know that was an argument that came up in the Harvey Weinstein case as well. But these allegations spanned in this trial from 2001 to 2013, a period in which Spacey spent a good portion of his time as the artistic director for the Old Vic Theater. The men who said Spacey assaulted them came forward after an American actor came out saying that Spacey committed an act of sexual misconduct against him. This was as the Me Too movement was rising to prominence about six years ago. British actor Christine Agnew described the former House of Cards star as a bully who preyed on men from behind a shield of fame. Spacey testified in the trial. He said, my world exploded. There was a rush to judgment. And before the first question was asked or answered, I lost my job. I lost my reputation. I lost everything in a matter of days. Last year, he also emerged victorious in a $40 million sexual misconduct lawsuit brought against him by actor Anthony Rapp. Earlier this month, Spacey predicted that he'd soon be working again after an acquittal in this UK trial. So this was Kevin Spacey uh, leaving the, after the jury reached their verdict and leaving the courtroom. That I'm enormously grateful to the jury for having taken the time to examine all of the evidence and all of the facts carefully before they reach the decision. And I am humbled by the outcome today. So as of now, this guy who essentially has not been able to work in motion pictures for the last six years or on television. Remember, they fired him for the la- from the last season of uh, House of Cards, and that season was absolutely terrible. It's the only one that's unwatchable. First one's great. Second one's very good. Third one is uh, it's okay. okay. Fourth one is not good. The last season without Kevin Spacey, that's the only one that's actually unwatchable. Kevin Spacey has now been resoundingly cleared of every single Me Too era accusation against him that's actually been adjudicated in the court of law. And despite having his career and reputation destroyed, he's been cleared in every courtroom. At what point can we conclude that Kevin Spacey was a victim of this Me Too witch hunt. This rush to judgment, this trial by media, which has taken down so many men. He has not been found guilty in a criminal court or a civil court anywhere. And yet. His career was ruined. Hopefully now that he gets his, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, his reputation back. He's not been able to work in movies for six years. So after the initial wave of now disproven Me Too allegations, Sony 
actually went so far as to remove any trace of Kevin Spacey from a finished movie that he had starred in. Understand, the movie was done, and it was uh, they they re-edited it at substantial cost and had to reshoot all of his scenes with Christopher Plummer. And it was still a good movie, but I mean that's crazy. It's like the reminds me of the old Soviet Union when you'd fall out of favor with the Soviet Politburo and they airbrush you out of the photographs. Netflix severed all ties with him, despite the fact that he was the lead role in the show that put them on the map, House of Cards, which was their first original show. Now, again, there's a lot of people in the private sector and a lot of people that you've never heard of that they've had their lives ruined and their careers ruined by false Me Too allegations. And it's difficult to kind of pass the hat around and play the world's smallest violin for Kevin Spacey because he remained a very wealthy celebrity throughout this whole ordeal. But that doesn't mean that he was any less wronged by this moral panic which upended his life for the last six years based on allegations that have now been comprehensively discredited in two different countries. You know, the old phrase from uh, Ray Donovan, the secretary of labor in the Reagan administration, who was smeared with some allegations early on rings true. Where does this man go to get his reputation back? Now, Kevin Spacey is a genuinely good actor who for the last six years has been in my view. And I think this has been borne out wrongly deprived of the ability to continue doing what he's good at and what I enjoy seeing him doing because of this toxic zealotry of the Me Too movement and this cowardice on the part of corporations and this total disregard for needing to prove allegations. You know, one of the things that I am so grateful for is that I work for someone like John Katsimatidis, who does not go for this trial by media, uh, uh, this uh, career assassination based on allegations. The people that he employs on radio alone, do you think half of these people could work at any other media company? Of course they couldn't, because no corporation would have the stones to hire these people. And John, to his credit, he said, no, I don't care if someone's good on the radio. I'm going to put I'm going to hire them. I don't care about what they might have done in their past or what unproven allegation might be out there against them. That is the rarity. That's not the attitude Netflix has. That's not the attitude Sony has. That's not the attitude any of these major media corporations have when they fire you as soon as you're accused of something that's tawdry. I mean, you watch any of Kevin Spacey's films and the last one that he made right before he was randomly decreed to be a Hollywood pariah, was Baby Driver. That movie is worth watching just for the soundtrack. We play a lot of the songs from that soundtrack frequently on this program. Six years later, the only proven victim to have been really proven in any of this stuff is him, is Kevin Spacey. And I remember when... Kevin Spacey was mocked for putting out this video of himself delivering an in-character monologue denying the charges as Frank Underwood. Now, who was he mocked by? He was mocked by everybody, including me. I said, this is so weird 
for him to become a fictional character, Frank Underwood, to address real-world allegations. And I still think it's weird, but if you go back and watch this now, who got the last laugh? So I'll ask you the question, where does Kevin Spacey go to get his reputation back? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This was that Let Me Be Frank, because remember, his character on House of Cards was Frank Underwood. This was his Let Me Be Frank video that he made um, when he was summarily fired during the Me Too scandal. I know what you want. Oh, sure, they may have tried to separate us, but what we have is too strong, it's too powerful. I mean, after all, we shared everything, you and I. I told you my deepest, darkest secrets. I showed you exactly what people are capable of. I shocked you with my honesty, but mostly I challenged you and made you think. And you trusted me, even though you knew you shouldn't. So we're not done, no matter what anyone says. And besides, I know what you want. You want me back. Of course, some believed everything and had just been waiting with bated breath to hear me confess it all. They're just dying to have me declare that everything said is true and that I got what I deserved. Wouldn't that be easy if it was all so simple? Only you and I both know it's never that simple, not in politics and not in life. But you wouldn't believe the worst without evidence, would you? You wouldn't rush to judgments without facts, would you? Did you? No, not you. You're smarter than that. Anyway, all this presumption made for such an unsatisfying ending. And to think it could have been such a memorable send-off. I mean, if you and I have learned nothing else these past years, it's that in life and art, nothing should be off the table. We weren't afraid, not of what we said, not of what we did, and we're still not afraid. Because I can promise you this. If I didn't pay the price for the things we both know I did do, I'm certainly not going to pay the price for the things I didn't do. Oh, of course, they're going to say I'm being disrespectful, not playing by the rules. Like I ever played by anyone's rules before. I never did. And you loved it. Anyhow, despite all the poppycock, the animosity, the headlines, the impeachment without a trial, despite everything, despite even my own death, I feel surprisingly good. And my confidence grows each day that soon enough you will know the full truth. Wait a minute. Now that I think of it, you never actually saw me die, did you? Conclusions can be so deceiving. Miss me? Is that weird? Absolutely. To become a fictional character to address real-world implications? Yes. 
That being said, everything he says there about the impeachment without a trial, he's exactly right. Now, it is a little weird that he's comparing what Kevin Spacey is going through with what the character of Frank Underwood is going through, because Frank Underwood dies on the show, but you don't see him die. That's what he's referencing there. But um, I think it's clear who has had the last laugh now. And I just feel awful for this man. And I feel awful selfishly for me that I have not been able to enjoy his work for the last six years. Where does Kevin Spacey go to get his reputation back? Is there anything that can be done for the Me Too victims who are the men, not these women or men that were assaulted or preyed upon or sexually harassed or had to see Louis C.K.'s genitalia, but is there anything that can be done to people like Kevin Spacey or uh, Al Franken or Glenn Thrush or countless others whose names have been dragged through the mud based on unproven allegations. And that's what I'd like to know. And maybe we, you know, Bill Maher used to do this segment on his show, and if the writer's strike ever ends, maybe he'll do it again, called New Rules, where he sets new rules for society or whatever else. I would love to set up a new rule. How about we don't fire anyone we don't drag anyone's name through the mud. We don't cost anyone their reputation or their career or their job unless the allegations against them are. You ready for this? You ready for this? Proven. Wouldn't that be a wild concept? How about what if we create an imaginary country and in this imaginary country, we create this this set of civil liberties. Let's call it. I don't know, something like the Bill of Rights, certain rights that you're guaranteed, right, that nobody can take away from you, not the government, not another private citizen, nobody. And one of these Bill of Rights, I'm just spitballing here. What if we made one of these rights the fact that you're innocent until proven guilty? And then once you're proven guilty, then, okay, have your reputation taken away. Have, go, go to prison. Pay out all this money. But for people to be punished without a trial, whether we're talking people like Bill O'Reilly or Kevin Spacey, is, in my view, completely wrong. It's unfair. It's unethical. In my view, I think it's un-American. I would love to see this Kevin Spacey be the thing that puts a stop to this. Speaking of putting a stop to this. We're gonna get um, we're gonna to get to your calls in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, including if you want to comment on any of these other subjects, because there's a lot. A a federal judge has blocked a rule limiting asylum. Oh, these judges! A new Biden administration rule limiting access to asylum was blocked on Tuesday by a federal judge, an Obama-appointed judge in California, who issued a decision that's set to take effect in two weeks. This is going to be a disaster, okay? This is one of the things on immigration and on the border that the Biden administration has done well. And if this judge's ruling is upheld, you are going to see 4,000 people a week come into this country. This judge's decision is not only a huge loss for the Biden administration, it's a big kick in the stomach for the country as a whole or anybody that cares about border security. The Biden rule imposed new restrictions on asylum seekers, meaning if you wanted to come here and seek asylum, you were required to first seek protections in another country before making 
your way to the United States. Meaning if you're coming up from Guatemala or Belize or Venezuela or Central America, wherever, and you stop in Mexico first because you're about to be murdered by a, a gang of, of raping drug dealers, you have to stop and ask Mexico first, hey, can I have asylum here? You don't get to go to the country that you want to go to and pick out wherever you might want to live and ask for asylum there. It's a good rule. And it's similar to what the Trump administration was trying to do. So this rule, which was finalized in May, also restricted the ability to seek asylum between ports of entry. And in blocking this rule, this district court judge, John Teeger, wrote that the Biden administration's policy undermines the clear intent of Congress in establishing a safe haven for those fleeing persecution or danger. I don't think that's true, but okay, this is what the judge wrote. Requiring non-citizens to present at ports of entry effectively constitutes a categorical ban on migrants who use a method of entry explicitly authorized by Congress. Conditioning asylum eligibility on presenting at a port of entry or having been denied protection in transit conflicts with the unambiguous intent of Congress. So now. This rule takes effect in 14 days. Well, actually, it was yesterday. So it takes place. It takes an effect 13 days from today. The Justice Department is appealing. Thank God. And if this judge's ruling stands, it's over. It is over. So hopefully um, when a higher court hears this, they will reinstate the Justice Department ruling. Last big ruling that i'm going to mention a federal judge again this federal judges this week voided the court-martial conviction of former army sergeant bo bergdahl who in 2009 walked off a u.s military outpost in eastern afghanistan and spent the next five years in enemy captivity u.s district judge reggie walton finalized a March order granting summary judgment in favor of Bergdahl, who was convicted in October of 2017 of desertion and misbehavior before the enemy. Judge Walton wrote that Bergdahl was denied a fair trial because the military judge who presided over the case did not disclose that while the matter was pending, he applied for a job as an immigration judge with the Justice Department, which acted as a prosecutor. Well, that certainly is something that he should have disclosed. The judge rejected Bergdahl's claim that Trump exercised unlawful influence as the commander in chief by vilifying him as a dirty, rotten traitor. But uh, the Bergdahl conviction for desertion is vacated. So you want to weigh in on any of these big court cases, all significant yesterday. Kevin Spacey, Asylum, or Bergdahl, be my guest, 800-848-9222. Here is Eugene Fidel, Bergdahl's defense attorney, after this decision. I think he's still uh, absorbing this. It's a tremendous relief, obviously. Here is General Barry McCaffrey, a military analyst, talking about the situation. He's already had been hammered by the Taliban for five years. Uh, that was that was sufficient self-imposed punishment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We're going to do the thousand dollar minute shortly, but a lot of you have been holding. So what I'm going to do is go to you guys in the order in which you've been holding. We'll reward patience on this one, irrespective of the topic. Let me begin first with David in New Jersey. Hello, David. David. 
David! David! David probably fell asleep. 800-848-9222. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hi, I have a lot to say. I was calling about the talk show thing, but I want to comment on Kevin Spacey. I think it's great that he was acquitted. I think he is a great actor. I knew Al Franken. He and I were both members of the Mark Green mayoral campaign in the year 2001. He was not a sexual harasser, uh, Al Franken. He was a cut-up, like a high school kid you roll your eyes about. He wanted to be liked. He wanted attention, but he was not a sexual harasser. He was just a silly guy who liked to have fun. And I thought it was terrible that a certain senator, who shall remain nameless, feathered her own nest by destroying him. We know whom I mean. About uh, Kevin Spacey, well, Ingrid Bergman's career was destroyed when she had two children with Roberto Rossellini, but she came back. Six, seven years later, she won the Academy Award for Anastasia. So I think there's hope for Kevin Spacey, and he should sue the crap out of Netflix for what they did to him. Thank you. Regarding, Go ahead. Go ahead. Last comment. Go ahead. Okay. Regarding uh, the talk show, in 33 years of doing a public access talk show, I have only paid one guest, and that was an impromptu thing because he was destitute. I happened to have $60 in my purse. This is 30 years ago. And he said, is there any payment? And I said, well, no, you know, it's public. I don't get paid. Right. And he said, oh, but I felt sorry for him because he was older and poor. So I happened to have $60 with me. So I said, but here, thank you for your time. Boy, it was like those machines in the subway that suck up the money. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it just went like that, you know, but thank, uh, thank you, Diana, thank you for Kevin space. Uh, thank you. I want to try and squeeze into some other people here. 800-848-9222. Kathy is either on Amtrak or in Amtrak. Uh, Kathy, where are you? I'm about to board the Amtrak train to Washington, D.C. Wonderful. Going to going to the Senate invitation. There is hope for careers. <laughs> And it's National Whistleblower Day celebration. Oh, really? So it's going to be I a very grand that. day. Wow. Really? Yeah. Um, so what I wanted to say is uh, Spacey, Alec Baldwin, Al Franken, we could bring a bu- lot of people together and they can uh, start their own production company. I, I think uh, there's a lot of talent there of uh, people that have been Me Too'd or, or otherwise made a pariah. Good luck in D.C., Kathy. Joe is in the Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi, Frank. I think on the Spacey thing, uh, you said that the last season did not include him, right? Correct. Okay, so uh, I watched some of those episodes on Netflix of the earlier seasons. It, without him... You've ruined jobs for other actors like that probably worked hard to get the small part, which would be a big deal for them, getting even a little part on House of Cards. You've got the location set up in advance. You've got the caterers. So by doing that, by making a stand, Netflix shafted all these other smaller people in the business out of what, you know, a, 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 a part or whatever, you know, all these other workers, the people working the cameras. So I, I think, you know, there's no perspective of people that are harmed by the decision to make him, you know, the poster boy 
so to speak, and, and how it affects all those other people that for hard to get smaller jobs in the acting. Yeah, industry. it's a good point, Joe. Joe, thank you. Hey, uh, those of you that are holding, uh, we'll try and get to you after the $1,000 minute, but uh, for those of you that would like to try to win $1,000, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And uh, if you are the seventh caller, you'll get an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Answer them all correctly, and you will be a thousandaire straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, tomorrow, don't forget, we've got to Ask Frank Anything, so start coming up with some uh, some good ideas for questions. We'll also be celebrating Christmas in July tomorrow, and I believe we have uh, a couple of cast members from The Sopranos dropping by tomorrow. So stay tuned tomorrow to, uh, to find out which questions are. And then uh, my wife, Rachel, and my son, Carmine, and me are uh, going on vacation for a week, and I'm not sure who is going to be in next week. I have uh, submitted a list of recommendations for people that I think would do a good job, and so far that list has not even been acknowledged by the higher-ups. Not even, we're not going to go with you, just not just totally ignored so far. So we'll see where that goes. All right. Uh, without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let us meet Charlie on Staten Island. Hello, Charlie. Hello, how are you? Charlie, you know I'm a Staten Islander as well. Yes, I know. Uh, have, we ever, have we ever met? Not that I know. All right. Well, so you, we people know that uh, this is on the level. I have not secretly snuck you the answers to this contest. Have you heard this contest before? I heard it once or twice, but uh, I'm not sure exactly. All right. Well, so basically it's very simple. Uh, you're going to have 60 seconds to answer 10 of these trivia questions. And uh, after I ask the first question, that's when the timer will stop. There's only 10. So it, when you answer a question correctly, I'm just going to move on to the next one. There's no opportunity to um, pass or anything like that. So you either know it or, or you take a guess. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Ready to go? Yes, sir. What state were you born in? New York. What is my son's first name? Oh, 
Um, I just so said it. it. Starts with a C. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm sorry, Charlie. Sorry, Charlie. It's uh, Carmine. 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 Yes, I yes. just mentioned it. I just mentioned. Sorry, Charlie. Uh, as the expression goes, Charlie, hang on. Give Kenneth your information. We will give you a consolation prize. See, I made a point of mentioning it right before the contest started, just in case he was a new listener, because we're getting new listeners all the time. In case he was a new listener, to make sure he had an edge. Um, we're not, I'm not out of line there, uh, Matt. Right? That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Thank you, Carmine. He. Um, By the way, if you go to my Instagram, uh, at Morano Vision, M-O-R-A-N-O Vision, you can see a photograph of, uh, of Carmine and me that I took yesterday. And, uh, you know, he is really quite a, quite a rascal, but he was trying to close the, the, um, the door that houses the litter box that the cats use. And he was being a rascal. He's also, he's like his father. He likes to, he likes pens. I'm not sure he entirely understands what pens do, but he likes grabbing them and saying pen. But it isn't, he's been sleeping pretty well uh, throughout the night. He's been in a good mood all week. Hopefully that continues on vacation. And it's funny. He had a good night's sleep last night. And then when I woke up, he was still asleep. And my wife comes into my office and says, you know, Carmine's been asleep for three hours. I said, well, he must be tired. Did he wake up last night? She said, no, he slept throughout the night last night. I said, well, he's running around. It's summer. It's hot out. He's he, tired. And she says, no, I'm, I'm worried. I said, honey, you're worried when he doesn't sleep. You're worried when he sleeps? I said, don't wake him up. What's the rule? Never wake a sleeping baby. And she said, no, no, I, uh, I don't like this. What if something's wrong? What's wrong? He's asleep. It's a nap. She says, no, he never sleeps this long. It's now over three hours. I said, okay. Whatever you want to do, because I'm not going to tell her not to wake him up. And then all of a sudden something's wrong and I'm responsible. So she goes and, and, and wakes him up and he was in a pleasant mood. We had a fun day by and large, still in this habit of throwing things all over the place. Although and I know, I know everybody thinks this about their, their child. My wife keeps remarking because we have spent some time with other children that are around his age. And my wife keeps remarking that he he does seem a little advanced for 20 months. You know, we're outside and it's 5, 530 and it's bright out. The sun is still out. And he looks up at the moon. He looks up at the sky and he says, moon. And my wife says, no, there's no moon there. You just think that's way because the sky. There was just a little sliver of the moon barely visible that he recognized then we're having dinner and he's got carrots and these they're little cut up carrots they're little circular carrot pieces and he takes a bite out of one of the carrots and he says and it looks like a crescent moon or a half moon when he when he ate it and he holds up the one that he bit and he says moon and my wife's very impressed that he said moon and um, then he holds up another whole carrot and he says, circle, circle, which he says a lot. So my wife is convinced that he's super advanced. She's she's already started to talk with college recruiters at uh, places like Harvard and Yale to see which colleges that he will consider 
So uh, we'll see where that goes. But, um, you know, on the cat front, our cat Melchizedek, who he was disrupting from going to the bathroom, is having a very tough time. As I've said, he's got uh, it looks like he's got cancer and uh, he's on the last of his nine lives. He vomited seven times yesterday, seven times at least, which is, you know, it's not unusual for him to vomit, but it's unusual for him to vomit seven times. And he um, had a bowel movement right on the floor, didn't even make it to the litter box. And then my wife messaged me when I uh, when I was on the way to work that he had urinated on the rug in our bedroom. And that's stuff that he never does. So uh, he's clearly losing control. And I feel bad that we're about to leave him with a pet sitter next week when we're on vacation. But uh, it's uh, it's not looking good for old Melchizedek. So hopefully this is just a temporary thing, maybe a stomach bug, but chances are it's not. Probably it's tied to his um, his cancer diagnosis. So it's been a, a tough time emotionally at the uh, at the Morano household for all that's uh, going on with with that. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. One thing I did want to play is I've had this on my list all week. Howard Kurtz was on uh, the Fox News channel on Sunday. I think the show is Media Buzz. And basically, this is a show of media criticism. And he was talking about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. This is what Howard Kurtz said. Now, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the son of a former senator and attorney general, the nephew of a former president, and he's right now the second highest polling Democratic candidate for president. This is what Howard Kurtz said on the subject of news organizations covering Robert F. Kennedy. Griff, why do news organizations keep putting RFK on the air? He's a long history of spreading conspiracy theories, falsehoods. He's obviously entitled to speak. I'm not saying he shouldn't uh, have any access to the media. Sometimes he's challenged, as he was by Martha McCallum this week. But it's almost like he's a celebrity providing entertainment. So he says, why do news organizations keep putting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on the air? Organizations keep putting RFK on the air. He's a long history of spreading conspiracy theories, falsehoods. He's obviously entitled to speak. I'm not now. It's interesting. A couple of things here. One, I love that degree of arrogance and hubris of this media elitist determining who merits coverage and who does not merit coverage. You know what presidential candidates I'm going to invite on this program? All of them. I am going to invite every single presidential candidate, unless somebody just says they're running for president and then doesn't get on the ballot or anything. But anybody, Republican, Democrat, independent that's on the ballot in, or third party that's on the ballot in enough states to win will be welcome on this program enthusiastically. Because these, in my view, we have an obligation to help tell the public what these candidates believe in. And the irony of all ironies is that two days after he said that, who hosted him on that same channel, Fox News, Sean Hannity, Tuesday night. They have a big town hall meeting, Hannity and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and the two of them got into it a little bit over the situation with the war in Ukraine. So Ukraine, to, to appease Putin, uh, Putin, rather, who I think is evil, they've already given up Crimea. It was annexed. So what, they, now they have to give up the Donbass area? Uh, I, you know, they, Ukraine, because of our 
pushing the Ukraine into the war on two occasions. They, they, in we we pushed them into it or to Putin? Well, let me made... tell you. Let me, let me answer your question. Yeah. In 2019, France, Germany, and Russia all agreed to the Minsk Accords. That year, Zelensky ran for president. He was a comedian. He had no political experience. Why did he win? Because he, he won, ran on one issue, signing the Minsk Accords. As soon as he got in there, Victoria Newland and the White House told him he couldn't do it. Then Putin sends 40,000 troops in. That's not enough to conquer the country. Clearly, he wanted us to come to the negotiation. He wanted somebody to come to the negotiating table. Zelensky came to the negotiating table signed a new agreement that was the Minsk Accords II in 2022, and that would have allowed Donbass to stay, and Lugansk, to stay to remain as part of, of Ukraine. We said Putin signed it, Zelensky initialed it, and Putin, in good faith, began withdrawing troops from the Ukraine. What happened? We sent Boris Johnson over there to torpedo it. Because we don't want peace with, we want the war with Russia. What a, what, you know what? I think it's very telling that that Hannity audience applauded what he was saying, because I think there's a lot of truth to what Kennedy was saying there. Um, I have to give Sean Hannity credit, though, because I have noticed last few months his show has uh, gotten a lot better. I never watched his show, really, because it was always just so boring and predictable. The same pundits, the same talking points, just a rehash of whatever the Republicans say is good, whatever the Democrats say is bad. It's the most boring show in the world. But he's been having more and more people on that he has differences of opinion on. People like Gavin Newsom, people like Cornell West, people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and they mix it up on these issues. And um, I think it's great to see. It's great to see uh, people of different viewpoints talking with one another. So, look, I hope Hannity does well with that, and I hope he does more of that, and I hope um, more people on cable news start doing that same thing because there's too few shows on both TV and radio that do that. And uh, I think i uh, got to give you Hannity uh, get, gotta give him a little, a little credit there. All right. Happy birthday to the wrestler, Triple H. Happy birthday to... Former Yankee superstar Alex Rodriguez and 101 years old today, Norman Lear. Norman Lear, one of the greatest television writers of all time, one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, the man behind hit shows like All in the Family, Maud, Sanford and Son, One Day at a Time, The Jeffersons, Good Time, Good Times. 101 years old today. May he live for another 100 years. Man seems like a great guy and uh, certainly an incredible talent. 15 seconds of fame next. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on any subject for 15 seconds. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. 
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Disappointed Met fans. And a terrific song, which is no longer available on iTunes. If you um, want to get a hold of this, uh, if you email me, I'll connect you with Stevie G. You can uh, email me at uh, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. One of the things that I'd like to do when I return is really make an effort to do a full show focusing on uh, kidney donation and trying to get some kidneys for people. So far, I've gotten some interesting responses from people that are willing to donate a kidney. If you want to donate a kidney and help save someone's life, email me at that same email, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Or if you need a kidney, let me know and we'll put you on the list. All right. This is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds as part of The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Rusty. Yes. How come you didn't get back to me? Would sit at the Rosenbergs. They could uh, babysit when you go on vacation. Sid and his wife. Raji. Up, uh, uh, over a quarter million Venezuelans uh, allowed to live and work in Argentina have been arriving in the U.S. by land and air because they are told in the U.S. they do not have to work. Up- Jerry. Hey, Frank, I respect and like your show. I listen to it all the time. But you got to stop pleading poverty all the time. You're on vacation every other week. You're going out to restaurants every night. Be a man. You got a son now. Fred. Hey, Frank, Chris Christopherson and Sinead O'Connor were both on the same Saturday Live program. They died this week. Don't let the bastards get you down. That slams the lid on things for today. Back tomorrow with Ask Frank Anything. Frank Moreno, good day. The Other Side of Midnight.